This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you love underground music and movies, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed shirts, vinyl, CDs, and more. Go to portlanddistro.com. Plug in the discount code MikeHill666 for 15% off at portlanddistro.com. So we spent a lot of time talking about you and Trash American Style and just the the 80s and the 90s, independent records, um, a lot of uh, the kind of free speech stuff that's very you know, much in the consciousness these days and tolerance and all this other stuff. So we figured that we'd ask you on the show again because I think this is like your at least your third appearance on this show. Mm, at least the second that I know of. Yeah. When we did it before, you were filming. Were you filming? We did. I, I interviewed you outside of a venue in Danbury one time. Ooh, that was a long yeah, time yeah. ago. Then we came back and we filmed you for, um, there was like a, a, a trailer for a documentary that we never actually made. Uh, and then I, you came to New Haven. Yes, I remember the New Haven. That was when you filmed me. Was that the time that we went to my former mother-in-law's yes. porch? Oh, okay, yeah. right. Yep. Right. And then Got now it. we're here in Connecticut, in Holland. Yep. Of all places. In the, in the basement here. The bunker. The bunker. It's a very charming bunker. I, as I walked in here, I said, it reminds me of a record store. So I really felt like I was in my natural habitat. Perfect. Absolutely. We have like a bunch of records here in racks, <laughs> which is, I've never actually seen that in someone's, you know, abode before, a physical dwelling, like a... A setup like this. I wanted it to feel like a record store. I didn't want a shelf where you're looking at spines. I wanted to look at records. It's the way to do it. It's it's a Saturday afternoon. I feel like I'm on tour. It's it's great. (laughs) Perfect. That's what we're we're shooting for. By the way, I should mention to the people out there that that clip of me being interviewed on my mother-in-law's, my former mother-in-law's porch is on YouTube. I see it fairly often. It's out there. You know, I... I we were playing we had these ambitions back then of doing more like documentary stuff and um, I'm not a film guy and the person that is the film was the film person is no longer in my uh, my circle of uh, people anymore so canceled uh, yes yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so um you know I, I need to find someone who uh, is good at editing and making films and all that kind of stuff but yeah we I wanted to do like a documentary and that's that was one of the ideas but that. But for right now, you can find this awesome clip out there, and uh, that's out there on YouTube, and you know, it kind of gives you an idea like where we're at at that particular juncture in this time continuum that we're experiencing. I think we should consider that to be an open invitation, because uh, I don't know if I could count, and this is not any kind of a knock on you, but I cannot even count the number of unfinished documentaries I'm in. <laughs> we got to finish one of them. Man, I tell you, it's... Uh, it's I used to do a little bit of work in film, not behind the camera, but on the audio side. So I had an idea of how much work it took to cut stuff and film. And I've been on like tons of like shoots and everything on, on the audio end of it. But when you're actually trying to coordinate something and make it happen, that's really what that that's 80 percent of the battle, I think, is coordination when you're doing like a documentary type film set up you know i can't even imagine personally i mean it's like writing a novel you know how how do you even conceive of and organize and then execute a novel let alone a 90 minute film i mean it's uh, beyond me well and then you get the raw footage like you can have like 20 or 30 hours of footage and then to cut it down to something that's not this like 
Cecil B. DeMille epic of 10 hours and fit it in that 90 minute segment. And, you know, if you think about that, like, what do yeah. you cut? Like, what stays? What, how do you cut this and how the story makes sense? And it's like way beyond my capabilities. Oh, I me think. too, man. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, thank God for the director's cut. <laughs> Sometimes those aren't good. Like, the Apocalypse Now one, I don't think, was very good. I, I tried to slog through that once and it was pretty much undoable. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Apparently, I've always known you as someone who's very prolific with, with different projects and music and all this other stuff. So you played a gig last night. Played a gig last night. That's why the, the listeners out there have this really rare opportunity to hear me uh, burnt to a crisp in front of the microphone. <laughs> and uh, anybody out there who's in the rock and roll biz knows it's all about late nights and long drives. And I've just come off of both. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So I know that you're an anti-scene. Oh, and this yeah. is, like, is this a new band that you're doing right now? Well, yep. The band uh, that I played with last night is called The Bloody Apostles. And The Bloody Apostles, like so many things in my life, has its roots in my involvement with a certain guy named Gigi Allen, who, you know, maybe some people here know of. Um, <laughs> I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah I've, I've episode about Gigi, so yeah. Yeah, which is a good thing. I see the Gigi poster on the wall. The the listeners out there can't see it, but I can see it. <laughs> Gigi's over. He's overwatching us. He's watching over us right now. You it's, sent me that poster. Yeah, I know. Aren't I'm great. And you also contributed to our Gigi Allen episode we did a few months back. Yes, yeah. yes, which was cool. I'm glad to actually be here in front of the mic and get to yap in person. This is nice. Um, but yeah, the Bloody Apostles started in 1989 and it was the brainchild of a guy named Paul Ledney who was the drummer for a band called Profanatica and Profanatica I'm going to go ahead and say it were the first American black metal band you know there might be some dispute hither and yon but it's never been actually proven or disproven that they are not so they were the first American black metal band and Paul Ledney called me up one day and said man I've been corresponding with Gigi and uh, we, he wants us to do an EP together. He wants someone to record a bunch of tracks and you'll put the vocals on top of it and we'll release it as a seven inch. Do you want to you know, write the guitar parts? I said, would love to. So we got together and we wrote and recorded an EP that Gigi was going to put vocal tracks on top of. And it never happened. Gigi just kept, you know, Gigi being Gigi, he was you know, either like whatever circumstances in his life did not allow him to record the vocals for our project. So it never happened. I still have the instrumental tracks on tape. They're really good. And I'm a man of very, very few regrets, but I really regret that we did not get to finish that EP. Mm. And it, the thing that kills me the most is that we actually had Gigi in the studio it was the day of the infamous SUNY Purchase show that we did um, in April of 89. And we were at the studio to pick up the, the, the gear for the show that night. And he thought we were going to record right then and there, but we weren't. You know, we were just there to pick up the gear. And when that didn't happen, he just seemed to have lost all interest because his only interest after that was playing the show. And then after playing the show, getting out of town immediately <laughs> <laughs> probably a common for whatever error. reason <laughs> yeah and that and that was it and after and after he left that that was it it was like he left the entire project behind oh wow he uh, was not interested in it anymore he was done so 
So you guys have released some music as the Bloody Apostles. Are these? Yes. Is this new material or is this songs from back then? Well, reimagined. Um, yes, yes, and yes. Um, fast forward to the year 2020, the year of the Great Plague, and um, I was brainstorming with P.P. Duvet, who is the current lead singer of the Murder Junkies. Right. So I'm in a band with him called They Hate Us. Okay. Hope you guys have your scorecards Damn. out. I'm like, this is getting kind of convoluted. Yeah, I kind of know this. Here. I kind of yeah. know most of this. Okay. But not in detail. All right. Well, here's all the detail you want. <laughs> That's what we want. That's what we're here for, man. <laughs> so I'm in a band called They Hate Us with P.P. Duvet and Dino, the infamous and well-beloved Dino Sex of the Murder Junkies, um, and our friend Mike Dietz from, from a band called RBNX. We got a band called They Hate Us. So during the great Black Plague of 2020, PP uh, and I were brainstorming about just some stuff we could do. Now take a step back to my current status as anti-scene bass player and minister of propaganda. We did a, um, a live broadcast back in October of 2020 called Halloween Quarantine, which uh, I might as well plug is coming out as a full-length LP um, this October. Oh, nice. So very excited about that. It's the second full-length LP that we got out of the pandemic. Two career-defining broadcasts. Really good stuff. Um, so to warm up for that, or more accurately, when we had an afternoon off, me and Mad Brother Ward, anti-scenes guitar player, um, just for the heck of it, we got together in the studio and made this sound sculpture of feedback and noise and chaos and mayhem called Sonic Sauna which, oddly enough, I released oh, yeah. on my label, TPOS. And um, again, the viewers can't see this fine product, but I'm staring at one right now. Numbered, hand-signed by me and Mad Brother Ward on cassette. You can get it on CD as well. I can't believe how good my products are. <laughs> I'm shocked. So we did this thing, and it's really cool. And... To get even more convoluted, Jeff Clayton, lead singer of Anti-Scene, he was the executive producer for the original Murder Junkies album in 1991. When Gigi got out of prison in 1991, he went straight to Charlotte, North Carolina, and went into the studio with Anti-Scene, who had already recorded a bunch of instrumental tracks for him to put vocals on. Does that sound familiar? It does sound very yes. familiar. Sounds yeah. very familiar. <laughs> Unlike our thing, this one got done. Ah. And that's what the original Murder Junkies album was. And interspersed between all the songs were spoken word parts that Gigi recorded. Just like poetry, if you want to call it that. Spoken performances. And they're really good. They're very intense. It's not just him you know, sitting in front of a microphone and, you know, reading from a chat book or something. It's him just going for it right like his voice is shredded by the time that the whole thing is done and so it's really intense i've, I've always enjoyed that part of of his catalog was the the spoken stuff and also the acoustic work that he did it's some of my favorite stuff that Gigi's done yes. yeah yeah that, that's a part of his career that i think is way way overlooked and um it's one of those things you just kind of wonder about and like i i sort of envision him morphing into like an outlaw country guy as time went on 
you know, because they're it's like you can only you can't you can only take things at face value, you know, and like what he said to people about like he told some people along the line that he was tired of doing the whole scumfuck thing and wanted to get beyond it. Who knows? Who knows how true or sincere that actually was? But if you sort of take that as a jumping off point and the fact that he had done the Carnival of Excess album and the Carolina Shit Kickers EP and loved country music, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. I mean, you can even make the argument to say that's his probably most coherent work, really, in some ways, as far as like, I mean, I love everything, the whole catalog of all of his stuff. But if you were to like grab someone on the street and be like, listen to this material, they would probably be able to comprehend as a coherent work, I think, the, the acoustic work. Oh, know? definitely, definitely. Yeah. I found that with, because um, I, I reissued the Carnival of Excess album, which was also from 1991, and it's Gigi with essentially uh, like a hillbilly string band, for lack of better terminology. And I was shocked by how well-received that album was when I when I put it out. People love that album. I love it. I, uh, I, I had the CD forever. I didn't know you put that on a vinyl until just recently yeah I ordered it from you um that's probably my favorite work of his actually it's great and yeah. i love everything yeah we both love everything and uh, we, we just covered a gg song actually oh. that's right yeah Seems... commit suicide right yeah. oh wow that's yeah. a that's a deep catalog cut yeah, yeah. it's coming out uh next year on like a little ep thing that we got coming out oh. but that's something we touched on when we did the gg episode too is that i think a lot he was a talented guy yeah. And that gets overshadowed a lot, you know what I mean, by all the other stuff that comes along with that. We yeah, very much so. We kind of get that point across when we did that episode. Yeah. That was kind of like the impetus of that episode was, you know, well, people that, should look a little deeper beyond, you know. Well, that's the point that I always make, you know. It's like if the music wasn't any good, nobody would care about the guy. He'd just right. be a freak show. Um, and it's the music that made me a fan. You know, like the the very first time I actually heard Gigi Allen – Back in 1987, when he sent me a whole, like I would sell his cassettes. I don't know if the story is getting too no, labyrinthine it's here, fine. too business like what but, uh, we do. Yeah, yeah. Like, this, was, our, 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 this is our art here. Right, right, right. All right. To talk, you know, talking shit. And I always take make things. too many notes, and I don't get to half of them. And it's better if they go where we're yeah. going. Yeah, well, I, I drove a long way here, so we're going to cover everything <laughs> on that <laughs> sheet yep, of yours, there buddy. We go, man. It's Fair happening, enough. dude. It's happening. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would like I. When I, when I started selling his stuff way back in 1987 and the only thing he had was cassettes, he sent me a box of cassettes and people were like, oh, you got this GGL stuff? Cool. I'll take this one and that one and this one. And I thought, hmm, all right. So what's this guy all about? What, what, uh, what is this music? I thought he was a hardcore guy, either like just a straight ahead hardcore thrash dude or maybe some kind of a weird performance artist. You know, because all, all I knew about him were the ads that he placed in Maximum Rock and Roll at the time. He was in almost every issue. Yeah. Which yeah. is how I knew how to get a hold of him when this kid walked into my shop very soon after we opened and said, do you have any Gigi Allen? And um, the only thing I had was a an original cassette of the Cedar Street Sluts demo, which I got from a radio DJ in Miami when I still live there. Gigi sent this DJ... The, the demo, the DJ was like, what is this shit? And, you know, traded it in at the record store I worked at at the time in North Miami Beach. And I didn't know who Gigi Allen was, so I wasn't going to give him any money for it. And the dude was like, just take it. I don't want it. Just take it. I'm like, all right, cool. 
threw it in a box and brought it back up north, you know, because it was something I could conceivably sell when I opened up my own record store. Um, so this kid wanted Gigi Allen. I sold him that copy of the Cedar Street Sluts demo. And he came back a few days later and said, that was great. You got more? And I said, I don't, but I can get you some. So I grabbed the latest, you know, the handy issue of Maximum Rock and Roll, leaped through it, found the G.G. Allen ad, and wrote to him, P.O. Box 54, Hookset, New Hampshire, whatever the zip code was, sent off a postcard saying, I would like to sell your stuff. Um, very soon after, got a letter from G.G. with a price list, said, uh, no records, cassette only, and um, they, were, they were expensive. At the time, at the time, the the wholesale cost for a demo was about like two bucks. Right. He wanted, I think, three fifty for his. I still have the list. I'd have to go back home That's and look weird. at it, but uh, <laughs> I saved everything from him. Yeah. Um, his stuff was way expensive compared to your average demo tape. So I wrote back and said, "Well, uh, we can sell them on consignment." You know, because we're, you know, brand new store. I don't have a lot of money. Your stuff's expensive. I didn't say all that, but I just said, we'll sell them on consignment. He wrote back and said, no, cash only. And I said, well, I guess that's the end of that. Figured that was, you know, the end of my dealings with Gigi Allen. Until about a week or so later, a box arrives in the mail <laughs> full of cassettes. And I said, here they are. They're whatever, 350 each. Don't fucking rip me off. <laughs> So I did what I always did with everything and still do to this day. I got this box of cassettes. I think it was like 20 tapes in there. Um, I grabbed one of each for myself because I'm a collector, put them aside and put the rest out for sale. And uh, by cracky, even though I had to sell them for $6 each, as opposed to like three fifty each for a demo, people bought them all. And this is in spite of the fact that he recorded over like old answering machine cassettes. Oh yeah. And yeah. you know, the, the, the Sertron brand three for a dollar cassettes. Used like, to come in a plastic sleeve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, I guess bands would send him cassettes. He'd record over them. <laughs> I've seen that a lot. Actually other bands doing that with their demos. Yeah. 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 You know, if it was like a factory made cassette of some sort with the, like the the data, the data printed on the shell, he would scrape it off yeah. and just write GG Allen eat my fuck on it. <laughs> Some of the sleeves were hand drawn, like the all the whoops, all the eat my fucks were hand drawn with marker. And I was like, this is some real sleazy shit, man. And, and he wants me to sell these for <laughs> six bucks each. You got to be kidding me! But people bought them. I I couldn't believe it. And so. My curiosity was very piqued by this. I'm like, what is this that people are willing to spend $6 for when it's real homemade junk? What is this? So fate would have it that I reached into that little stack and grabbed the first one I put my hands on, which was a cassette he made called You'll Never Tame Me. And I popped it into, popped it into the jam box, which was the only thing we had at the store at the time, right. pressed play, and heard the song Fuck Woman I've Never Had. And then I was like, this is good. <laughs> this is real yeah, good. Yeah. This is great. I was expecting generic thrash hardcore or maybe some kind of weird performance art, but this was just like 
no frills, no BS rock and roll. And even with songs that, you know, could, could potentially be kind of silly, like, you know, Needle Up My Cock or, you know, then getting into Eat My Fuck, like Fucking the Dog, um, that could be silly, right. you know, that, that, that like Fucking the Dog, great. How serious, you know, <laughs> yeah. how seriously are you going to take that? The thing that really got me, besides the fact that the music was really good, was that he sang these songs with absolute conviction. It was like when he sang Needle Up My Cock, you knew he meant it. You know, you could tell he'd been there. Right. And the same thing with fucking the dog. I mean, there's like no irony. There's no, oh, ha, 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 I'm fucking the dog. Ha, ha, ha. It wasn't like... um you know, the dead milkman doing a song right. about having sex with a dog. This was a guy who was just, I, I, I heard it and I believed it. Right. You know, and that was it. I was hooked. Yeah, I was terrified of Gigi Allen when I was a kid. Like, I was like, <laughs> I'd seen the imagery and heard the stories and, and I was like scared for many years before I actually jumped into it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and then little by little, it was one of those those. Probably some of my favorite music is stuff I didn't like right away. Mm-hmm. You know, like even Black Flag, I didn't like them right away. Yeah. But it was the thing where you hear it, some friends of mine liked them, liked um, Gigi Allen, the Murder Junkies, and it's, I started thinking about it more and more, and then I returned to it, and then I became like a big fan. Yeah. I was scared by it, too. Yeah. I, it was maximum rock and roll for me, too. I would, every month or every issue, was it monthly? I don't it was know, monthly it at was. the time. Yeah. I would see, you know, I was buying Youth of Today records. So right. I was like, uh, I don't know yeah. what I don't know what this is, but it's fucking terrifying, and I don't want to know what this is. But then over time, as you you know, uh, you start to expand, you know, and and your store, Trash American Style, was a huge part of that. For me, I know for yeah, both for me too. I, but I live in the Carmel more so, so than anything else. That was what made me go from just listening to straight up hardcore to all everything I listen to now. Yeah. Was all kind of formed there. But, you know, we can get to that a little bit later. We can keep on the GG stuff. When we do the trash <laughs> episode, we can really get into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that definitely more. It's a huge <laughs> yeah. part of, uh, you know, why you're here. But, you know, the funny thing is I actually skipped a lot of hardcore when I was a kid because I it's like I never really fully embraced like hardcore you know what i mean it's like i was into rock and heavy metal and and then the black flag you know stuff mostly the west coast hardcore and then there were some kids i knew who were going to the cb's matinees and i never really got into like uh the youth of today or or you know gorilla biscuits or any of the straight edge stuff really yeah that was definitely my cup of tea for as you probably remember if you can remember me that far back oh yes yeah. you were younger was, and a little bit hairier but it was definitely you where's the revelation stuff yeah it's like you know <laughs> that was me for a few years it was a whole generation of kids right you know it, but you know it lasted literally a year or two which feels like 10 years back then oh you know, yeah just as fast as you get into it you're already on to something else i was talking yeah. about that last night i did we did a podcast with jay bennett and uh we were talking about one of my old bands that it, it was only the band was only around for three years but it felt like a decade of my life had been spent right. doing this thing and it's like yeah when you're 23 years old it's like time moves a lot time slower now yeah, yeah. so um, it does <laughs> just uh since we're rolling on the Gigi stuff, there's a few more things since, since you're in the flesh here. Uh, you had a personal relationship with Gigi. 
of some sort, right? We were you, friendly. You, yeah, you knew each other. Yeah, we so knew each other. Yeah. You ordered these tapes. You got this box of tapes. So how did how did that uh, move forward from there? Like how how did you meet him? Did you go to see him play? Like how, uh, is that how you met him, or did he come into the store? Or you know? well, that's a story in and of itself. <laughs> I figured it would. I'm be. Sure, you can imagine. Right. Um, whew, well, from that that initial fabled box of cassettes we you know we did business i'd you know buy and sell i i always was i always paid him so he kept selling he kept sending me stuff um and i just got more i got to be more and more of a fan of his stuff and what you just said a second ago about tastes being kind of transient when you're young the real kickstarter for me was maybe a few months after all this when the initial like the kid who came in initially who wanted gg allen sold me his entire G.G. Allen collection because he was tired of it. Ah, that and, happens, man. I remember being at that age, we were just done with it. I yeah. actually sold all my Slayer records at one point. Really? Mm. Yeah, it's funny, right? And I ended up buying them all back eventually. Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> As happens. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> Excuse me, I don't want to spike your level there. <clears throat> okay, I'm back. Um, so, yeah, we had this you know, friendly working relationship. And when this kid traded in the collection, that's, that was the Kickstarter. And that's when I first heard, uh, always is, was, and always shall be his first album and some of the earlier stuff he had done. And I was a little bit nonplussed because it was nothing like, Oh, the early material. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And it took me a while to warm up to it because right. it was so poppy mm-hmm. and so pop punky, if you will. Excuse me. Um, but I got into it. You know, I, I started to dig it. And so I'm, I'm getting in, into him more and more. And we're, you know, talking on the phone a lot and writing back and forth. And this dude who I knew from Florida named Brian Douglas Clemens turns out that he had moved to Connecticut right around the same time that I moved to Connecticut. Our paths were completely parallel. Now, Brian Douglas Clemens was a poet a spoken word artist, and he was legit. He was completely, utterly legit. He lived the life of a train-hopping, dope-shooting, whiskey-drinking, nihilistic, brilliant poetry motherfucker. (laughs) He was kind of like a Bukowski in that regard. You know, the dude... You know, he tried to hop a train and split his face open. He had, uh, you know, incredible scar on his arm from shooting up into an abscess, which he made a video of of the oper- of the post op. Yikes! And that 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 we're, that's relevant to the story as we continue <laughs> onward. So Brian was he was for real. He was hardcore. He was legit, and he was a great poet, like a really good writer. So he ended up landing in Connecticut right around the same time that I did. And he called me up one day and said, I've got this idea. I want to shoot a video. Because so I wrote this poem. It's called The $20 Poem. And it's about doing a $20 bag of dope. And it goes through the, the process one piece at a time. So it's a four-part poem. And I want to shoot this video of somebody tying me up, pissing all over me, raping me in the mouth, and reading my poem. All right, sounds reasonable enough, I guess. <clears throat> Thanks for calling me and telling me about that. Right. He said, "Do you know anybody who will do it?" I said, I, 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 "I think I know the guy." 
I think I know your man, Brian. <laughs> I just might have somebody for you. And I, I asked around with a couple other people I knew who were total degenerates in the scene, and they didn't want to do it. So I was like, well, here's this guy up in New Hampshire. Here's his phone number. Give him a call. So they connected. They set a date. They said, we need someone to hold the camera. Will you do it? I said, sure, why not? <laughs> why not? In for a penny, in for a pound, right? <laughs> so the magic day arrives, and uh, Brian lived in Stratford, and I was in Brookfield at the time. So he, he, was, he, he was living with his parents, too, um, and he didn't have a car. So he borrowed his father's car under some kind of false pretense. And he came to pick me up in Brookfield. And then we drove back to Stratford to a video store so he could rent a video camera. Because this is 1987. At the time, a video camera was still kind of a rare commodity. They were like these big, yeah. cumbersome, bulky yeah, things. You know, they were yep. expensive. They only recorded on the VHS blank tape. You know, this was probably like a twelve or thirteen hundred dollar item, and he had to rent it from this video store, so he could trundle on up to New Hampshire and film this thing. So, okay, here we are in what is, you know, essentially a stolen car, and you know, with this expensive, fragile camera that's not ours, and we're going to drive to New Hampshire to meet with this guy Gigi to shoot this video. All right, nothing too sketchy there. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. And there had just recently been like a really great big snowstorm that blew through. So like all of the roads were, you know, snowy and icy. And he's like driving up, I guess. I, see, I didn't, and here's the other thing. I didn't even know where I was at the time because I was, I was new to Connecticut. Right, right, right. I'd only been living there for a few months. So I didn't know where I was, what highway I was on, where I was going, where New Hampshire was. I just, I didn't right. know. <laughs> I, I was still firmly in the Florida panhandle. I knew what that was. So I'm like, in, I'm in the car with this maniac driving at like a hundred miles an hour straight up the highway, um, regardless of conditions. And, you know, at one time he had to really stop and urinate. So he pulled over out of the side of the road, got out the car and, facing traffic <laughs> you know made a point of getting out on the highway side and facing traffic so we could uh, take a wee wee <laughs> and all these trucks are going by and honking their horns and he's just like you know pissing under the highway i'm like wow what an auspicious beginning to the day so <laughs> we eventually make it up to hook set we're supposed to meet Gigi at this shopping center and uh, <laughs> we get there, we pull up to the shopping center, and what I remember the most was getting out the car in the parking lot of this place, and we pulled up in front of a place called the Funny Bone Joke Store. And um, on the wall, next to the Funny Bone Joke Store was this great big graffiti that said, G.G. Allen Rules, <laughs> which I did recognize as being his handwriting. <laughs> you're at the right place 
figured we had definitely found the mark. So we we're there for a couple of minutes and I will, I will never forget it. I will never forget the sight of G.G. Allen coming around the corner with, you know, uh, the filthy bandana, the greasy, filthy hair, the filthy denim jacket, the, the filthy, I can't use that word enough, crusty jeans. I think he was wearing a pair of engineer boots, the, the incredible prison tattoos. I mean, you, you didn't see stuff like this. No, no. You know, nowadays you can go to Bushwick and it's mommies pushing strollers. <laughs> that look like that. You know, but this was 1987 in Hookshead, New Hampshire. Right. And people did not look like that. I've actually been to Hookshead, New Hampshire. My, I have family that <clears throat> used to live in Hookshead. Wow. Actually, yeah. So, so you know. I know. I know. You know. Area. And there he was in front of the Funny Bone Joke Store and... Um, he had the eyeliner, like raccoon eyes with the eyeliner and uh, the Fu Manchu kind of mustache, sort of whatever it was. This was a bizarre looking dude. And he did smell bad. He definitely did smell bad. And he was like, hi, I'm Gigi. We shook hands and Brian gave him a bottle of Jim Beam and they were friends for life. I mean, that was it. Instant rapport between these dudes. It was, it was amazing. So they got in the front seat, I got in the back, and we were off. We had to find a place to do this video. And, um, like, Brian's original idea was to do it in, like, a completely, like, empty room. Like a, like a white cubicle, kind of. And they, you know, do the, the deed there. But um, as Gigi, like, Gigi had this rapid-fire monologue going almost the whole time about how he was, like... The cops wanted him. He just put his girlfriend in the hospital. Everybody fucking hated him. He couldn't go anywhere. He wasn't welcome anywhere. Nobody wanted him in this in their houses. And the cops are after him. He's got this warrant out for his arrest. And they're drinking Jim Beam in the front seat the whole time. And Brian's driving. And, <laughs> you know, they're bonding. And I'm just in the back seat listening to all this. And um, finally, it was like, well, where, where can we do this? Where can we do this? And Gigi said, well, I know where there's some woods outside of town. Let's just go into the woods and we'll do it there. And, um, you know, the, the camera had a, a battery pack, so we, we could do it. So we drove. But it's cold out, right? It was cold. Yeah, this is, this like is April of 87. Yeah. There's oh, snow on okay. the ground, you yeah. know. More snow on the ground in New Hampshire than there was in Connecticut. Right. And it's cold. And um, I'm a Florida boy. So this is, this is rough. GG, as he would probably say himself, did not give a fuck. He was in his, you know, denim jacket. I'm pretty sure it was sleeveless because I remember seeing the tattoos. You know, he might have had a leather jacket. I, I, a lot of those details I'm, I'm kind of blanking on. Right. But because it was sensory overload, you know. It was complete sure. tidal wave of mayhem <laughs> from the get-go. And so, yeah, we, we parked somewhere and walked up this hill through the snow and found a tree <laughs> in the woods and all i can say is it's much better to watch the 20 dollar poem video than it is for me to try to describe it because words do not come close can this be viewed somewhere now well if you, i've i've 
got it for sale on DVD and VHS. People keep trying to post it on YouTube and it keeps getting taken down. Yeah, I imagine that. Gee, I can't imagine. <laughs> you can imagine why I can't. <laughs> why this scenario of Brian Douglas Clemens and Gigi Allen in the woods with the scenario I described to you that the storyline, you know, the plot of the $20 poem with Brian Douglas Clemens tied up and abused. Oh, why? why? And what kind of community standards could that possibly violate? Silly question. So anyway, people do try to post it on YouTube periodically. It keeps getting taken down, which is fine with me because it means now if you want to see it, you got to buy a DVD or VHS from me. VHS. I still make VHSs. People still want them. I have a VHS player. So, me too. You know, yeah, I mean, they're, you know. We're going to cover this at the end before we uh, stop recording. But just so why it's fresh, where can people go to buy this exactly? Where can they go to buy this? I will tell you exactly where to buy it. Um, you can contact me directly, Malcolm Tent. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm everywhere. I got a website, MalcolmTent.net, M-A-L-C-O-L-M-T-E-N-T.net. You can look up Trash American Style, TrashAmericanStyle.us. If you don't want to do that, go on to Discogs and or eBay and look up T-P-O-S, as in 10 pounds of salt. T-P-O-S, that's my label, and I've got them for sale there. You, will, you might regret it, but you, you can get it. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Back in the 80s, it was, uh, there was like whole films that were shot on, on just on literally VHS tapes and edited, like these horror-type films. Yeah. Well, dude, oh, yeah. I, just, I just saw this really interesting podcast on, um, I think it's the Nigerian film industry, which is based on shooting movies in people's homes directly onto VHS because that's the state of the art over there. Still. Still. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Wow. And they're, and they're making like really, like they're the, the Nigerian version of Titanic made in this fashion. Wow. You know, the, the Nigerian version of Star Wars, oh, you know, so just to use an example. Oh, that is interesting. Plus original movies, you know. Huh. Great. I, and I've never actually seen one of these from start to finish, but I would love to. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, so just, I mean, to kind of wrap it up with the Gigi stuff, unless you have more. Oh, uh, yeah, let's keep going. Yeah. Okay. So that was your first introduction to him. But did you guys maintain, which was wild, obviously. Yeah. Did you guys maintain a, uh, like a relationship after that? Yeah, right? we stayed friendly for a long time. Um, I booked a show with him in the Disappointments at uh, an art college in New York, if you can imagine that, uh, which is immortalized on a seven-inch single that I put out. Uh, when he got put in jail, we corresponded. Um, after he got out of jail, we stayed in touch. I got to meet his brother Merle through Gigi, and we always had a very friendly working relationship and it came to an end and this is another one of those regrets on my very short list of regrets um one day i was at the store trash american style it was a saturday it was busy as hell i was being slammed and um Gigi would call me fairly often from prison just to talk just to chit chat and um, at the time, and it might, it might still be true now, I'm not sure, but if you were calling from prison, you had to call collect yeah. to the recipient, which meant the recipient had to pay for the call. And those calls were expensive. Like collect calls in general were expensive. 
collect calls from prison were really expensive. Hmm. So to talk to Gigi in jail, I, I was paying some good money, right. which I didn't mind, really. I didn't mind. But this Saturday, it was like the store was slammed. I had tons of people there, customers. You know, it, it was just like a really busy day at the store. And the last few calls that Gigi made, we were just bullshitting. Like, hey, how you doing? What's up? Oh, nothing. You know, there's just right. nothing really important. And so the call came through, collect a call from Gigi Allen, and I declined the call. And that was it. Never heard from him again after that. Oh, wow. That was the end of it. And I feel bad about that. You know, because I feel like I, I think I hurt his feelings by doing that. Right. You know, by refusing to talk to him. And we only bumped into each other once after that, just in brief. And it was at the NYU poetry reading, which is immortalized and hated. Oh, that, that was my next question. Yeah. And so I, I really, I wanted to talk to him about it. But, you know, I was with him for about 25 seconds before the mob descended and that was it. There was just no. Now, do you feel like he was the type of person where if you're like, tried to explain, Hey, it was real busy at the store. <laughs> would he, you know, or would he just be like, fuck you, you know, or do you think, do you think he would understand that? You know, it's like, you know, I, I don't think I'm qualified enough to speculate fair. on that. I really don't know. I, I mean, fair. if I had to guess, I would say it probably would have depended on his mood. Yeah. very heavily because he was friendly enough right. you know for the the brief moment that we bumped into each other you know, he didn't tell me to go fuck off or anything <laughs> but that's as far as it got you know i'll never know fair enough yeah so i'd like to get back to the bloody apostles yeah just, let's uh, <laughs> we were like, kind of like in the middle of talking about that yeah right yeah so yeah. i didn't realize the start the band actually the concept started back in 89, you were saying? Well, yeah, 89 is yeah. when the birth of the Bloody Apostles took place, you know, because, and that band always had two different names. Like, Paul Ledney's idea was to call it the Bloody Apostles. My idea was to call it the Connecticut Cocksuckers <laughs> to be as, you know, offensive and outré as possible. Uh, right now, I wish I hadn't done that because it's, <laughs> it's like, I don't want to be associated with the band with that name. But whatever, it's out there. It's in the soup. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, it was kind of the same deal. Paul Ledney came up with an entire list of song titles for the tracks we did. And I came up with an entire entire list of song titles. Because I figured the more to choose from, the better. You know, we were going to give this stuff to Gigi and he could choose or he just wouldn't choose any of them. Like, whatever. It was very freewheeling. And uh, so it of, it, of course, never happened. Gigi never did the vocals. And it was one of those things that was just like a little tiny footnote in history for years and years and years and years until during the plague year of 2020 when Mad Brother Ward and I from Anti-Scene recorded our Sonic Sauna soundscape cassette. Excuse me. And Mad Brother Ward suggested that maybe some of the stuff that we recorded would make good backing tracks for the Gigi Allen spoken word bits that were on the original Murder Junkies album. And those spoken word bits only appear on the very first pressing on LP from 1991. I think there's a CD version of it as well, but only from 91. Every single reissue of it subsequently has lacked the spoken word parts. And I asked Jeff Clayton about it because Jeff Clayton was the executive producer of that album. 
I said, how come? Why don't you, why didn't you ever include those spoken word bits? He said, well, the way it was set up originally with on the album, so it was like spoken word, song, spoken word, song, spoken word, song. Jeff hated that. He hated the way that the spoken words broke up the, the flow of the music, which I can totally see. So with every single reissue since then, he just took them off. He just did not issue them. So they've always been like this one little lost piece of the discography. So Mad Brother Ward made that suggestion. And I was kind of leery about it because I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Jimi Hendrix catalog. Yeah, sure. And how Alan Douglas kind of did that with a lot of Jimmy's unfinished recordings. He would hire studio musicians right, right, and right. they would overdub drum tracks and backing vocals and horn parts and all this stuff that was not part of Jimmy's original artistic vision. Right, 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 yeah. So I was kind of leery about that. I'm like, well, you know, who am I to, to say, well, I'll, over, I'll overdub my guitar noise on Gigi's tracks because then what do you do next? You know, um, hire a dulcimer player. And right. well, I think that this spoken word part would sound great with some dulcimer. So we'll put some dulcimer on there. Maybe Alan Douglas is available. He can get us some nice studio musicians to put backing tracks on these things. And it's like, I'm very, very sketchy and scary about tampering with the original work. But just for the heck of it, I did that. I took one of our soundscapes and put it on one of the Gigi spoken word tracks. And I was surprised. It sounded really good. Like, I really honestly thought it sounded good. It added a whole new dimension to the spoken word bit. So I was like, whoa, okay. This is, it's not a disaster. It, it might actually work. So I called Jeff Clayton and I ran it by him because he was the executive producer. He was in the studio for every second of the process. He and Gigi worked together on this. So he's legit. He, had a, he has a legit perspective and a legit opinion on what would work with this. So I, I ran it by him. I said, you know, I think it sounds pretty good. And he said, well, send it to me and I'll tell you what I think. So I sent it to him. And he liked it. So, all right. Maybe we will do this. So the wheels started turning even more. And I thought, well, you know what? Why not just limit it? If we're going to do this, then why limit it to just me and Mad Brother Ward? Why don't we get people who worked with Gigi? Why don't we get people who knew him? Why don't we get people who were in the studio and on the stage with him? And why don't we get them to contribute parts that can underpin Gigi's spoken word bits, like in a respectful way, like right. in a tasteful way. So I started making calls or, you know, in this modern age, sending messages. <laughs> yeah. I reached out to everybody I could think of who ever worked with Gigi and asked if they wanted to do this. And the, the response was positive like unanimously positive, including, you know, from people who like really knew him and really worked with him very closely. They were like, yes, I think that's a great idea. I think he would like that. I heard that more than once. That's good. So I thought, yes, okay, that's cool. If you really think that he would have liked this, then 
Let's do it. Um, and I asked his brother Merle if he would contribute. Merle said yes. Well, so yeah, that, that gives it a whole other dimension of uh, you know legitimacy too. Then yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jeff Clayton said he would do it. So th these are heavy hitters. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, these are the, the real people who are really there. Right. So these people are all on board. And I thought, well, gee whiz, why don't I call Paul Edney from the original Bloody Apostles because he started this whole thing. Get him to lay down some drum tracks and have him re read a piece and bring it full circle. You know, Gigi never recorded his vocal tracks, but now we can record a track for his vocals. And he was on board and he did it. And so we recorded his contributions in P.P. Duvet's garage, which is where They Hate Us practices. And so P.P. Duvet was there and um, you know, we, we took a break and I went upstairs and P.P. was like, hey man, do you think Lenny would want to jam? It's like, I don't know, let's find out. So we laid down the tracks. I said, Lenny, let's jam. Let's get P.P. down there and get down here and let's, let's rock out. He said, okay. And that was it. We just started jamming, writing stuff, recording, and thus the bloody apostles were resurrected. After three days in the tomb of the earth, we rose. <laughs> and now we're here to spread the bloody gospel of the bloody apostles. So it's a, it's a super group, man. It's the bass player from Anti-Scene, the lead singer of the Murder Junkies, and they hate us, the drummer from Profanatica, the two original members of the Bloody Apostles, superstar solo guy. I mean, what more do you want? More music. Yeah, man. We got it. So the two songs that have been released. Yeah. Is there going to be more stuff coming? Will there be an EP? Will there be an album? Next stage in our trip in our chariot across the sky is a six song seven inch ep for the hell's headbangers label oh, oh nice awesome cool it's a great label excellent yeah very cool they, very they release all the profanatica stuff yeah. and they have expressed a keen interest so within the next probably few weeks we're going to go into the studio and lay down six tracks for that awesome so yeah i'm pretty excited is there anywhere someone can listen to the two songs you have released Besides on the very unique record, is there a band camp? Is there, uh, are they on YouTube? Um, people, I know there's at least one clip of us playing live on YouTube. We I made, saw that. We made our world performance debut at uh, Vengeance Fest 5 uh, a, few month, a few weeks back. We played in a total downpour. Um, gear was shorting out. Uh, it was an outdoor gig? Outdoor gig. Wow. Total, totally outdoors at like this uh, holiday camp oh, type of place. And we were on, we were second band on the first day. So we go on, it's dumping rain all over us. We played our set and they immediately pulled the plug on the whole thing because of lightning. And wow. so we headlined, <laughs> we headlined. <laughs> That's a I never heard of, where is that? Um, it travels around. I think he does mostly shows in New York in oh, the New okay. Jersey area. And, um, God, I, I should have the, the itinerary memorized of all the bands who played. Necrovore was on there. Uh, Profanatica played. Um, just tons and tons of bands, mostly black metal and mostly death metal. And, um, 
yeah, it was, it was cool, you know, for, for two bands and a thunderstorm on the first day, <laughs> but, uh, it went over really well. People liked us and we've gotten a lot of positive feedback and a lot of offers and stuff just from that. So I'm pretty stoked. Great. And so to answer your question, you can see us playing in a downpour with <laughs> shitty equipment and stuff, short circuiting. And as far as the two tracks that we have released on the four inch lo-fi monophonic hand lathed record of which only 50 were made we don't have them posted anywhere wow but he just saw it we don't have those tracks posted anywhere but it's probably inevitable that somebody will at some point so at the moment we've got our facebook page which is just the bloody apostles and whatever presence you know that is we got that but i i have no doubt we'll be working on more as, as it goes on. We're four very creative dudes. We're like four dictators in one band, so things get done. So last night's gig, that was a Bloody Apostles gig? Yeah, Bloody Apostles played our second ever show last night with um, our friends White Thrash from Danbury and Collins Way from Danbury. And uh, it was good. It was really good. Um, the club owner did not like us. He... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had this idea that he was going to turn us down. Um, oh, yeah, that's great. Oh, man, you're too loud. You like he said that. we were too loud, oh, um, which by the time we were done, we were. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this this guy was very annoying, but he was at least smart enough to see a bunch of people drinking his beer, yeah. getting down to our music. So every time I walked over and turned my amp up a little bit, he stayed out of the way. Where, where was this gig? I'm not going to name the place because I don't like it. Okay. Fair okay. enough. <laughs> Got you. What, what city or town was it in? If I said that, you'd know what the venue was. <laughs> All right. So they don't get any props from me. Copy that. No problem. It was too far for me to drive and come back home and go to work at four in the morning. So. There you go. All right. So that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. You know, it's funny. Like, I grew up in Carmel. You know mm. what I mean? But I really have no idea, aside from, like, the anthrax, like, what actually goes on in Connecticut as far as, like, shows and venues or bands or any of that stuff. Because I didn't, as soon as I graduated high school, I moved, you know, right. I went to, like, college, and then I was on my Huckleberry Finn adventure <laughs> across the various cities. Yeah. You know? There hasn't been, correct me if I'm wrong, but there hasn't been much in the way of uh, decent venues out your way in a long time. It, right? It's it's been a while. I mean, especially um, like Central Connecticut. Yeah. Same thing without this way. There's not it, a lot out here either. No, it, it's always been that way. You know, yeah, it, yeah. everything is really catch as catch can. I mean, like New Haven seems to always have something going on. Right, right. Which is great, but honestly, they're the only city in this entire state, with the possible exception of New London. It's like New London's always had something going on in the, the venue, which was you know, variously known as the L and G right. or 86. Yeah. You know, there's always been something there, but new London's like clear over on the other side of the state. That's the problem. I always liked the L and G, but it's like, you're never going to get a lot of people there unless it's a huge show because there's not a lot of foot traffic. You have right. to drive there. Right. Know, which is unfortunate. Yeah. So it's always been catch as can around here. And, uh, you know, in Danbury for a while, we had the heirloom arts theater before that it was the Empress ballroom. And, um, you know, so much of it is just somebody finding a place and having a show, like a venue that will host shows for however long they actually host them. Right. Before they get burned out or move on or well, whatever. Fight or something destroyed, like that. You know? And uh, luckily there hasn't yeah. been 
hardly any of that. That's good. In a very awesome. long time. Yeah, there's a certain demographic represented there. Um, talk a little bit about anti-scene. Yeah, let's talk about anti-scene, yeah. man. Absolutely. Because uh, <coughs> obviously everyone knows who anti-scene is. And I've known you for a long time. And I was uh, blown away when it appeared that you were the bass player for anti-scene. And I, was, I know your relationship with those guys goes back a long way. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, me and the me and the anti-scene boys, we go back quite a ways. Uh-huh. Um, all the way back to the first ever tour I did with the first ever band I had, which is a band called Broken Talent. And we were from Florida, and we put out a record in uh, March of 1984 called Blood Slut, which um, is you now a very desirable and collectible record. Um, the funny thing is if it had been released six months before, it'd probably be like a thousand dollar record because it was in that magic window of killed by death, Uber collectability, which seems to have arbitrarily drawn a line on December 31st, 1983. Okay. And we were March 84. Uh-huh. So just a little bit on the wrong side of super mega sell a copy and retire right collectability but we still made our mark so we did the seven inch blood slut and um, i booked a tour and to get back to maximum rock and roll you know the only way the only real way to book a tour in the early 80s was to grab the latest issue of maximum rock and roll and go through the scene reports and take down phone numbers names and numbers you know because it'd always be like hey i'm from uh uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I book shows at a bar or a teen center or whatever. Give me a call if you're coming through. And at the time, the field was not nearly as crowded as it is now because I'm still a touring guy. I still play. I try to do 60 road dates a year and it's very difficult to book shows because a million people are out yeah, there. Right. Yeah. But back in the day, you know, you could just pick up the phone and call this guy or gal and say, hi, I have a band. We'd like to play your town in July. Okay, we can do it. Or we can't, or whatever, you'd figure it out. And so fate would have it that the issue of Maximum Rock and Roll that month had a scene report from Charlotte, North Carolina, and a guy named Jeff, who said that he was happy to help out. So I called Jeff, and he booked a show for us at a place called The Beat in Columbia, South Carolina. And he said, We'll have my band open. It'll be good. Awesome. His band was anti-scene. And that was the first time I came across those dudes. And um, it was one of those experiences that I will never, ever forget. Because the way the gig was set up, somebody from the bands had to run the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the drill back then. (laughs) Yeah. So I got tapped for door duty for at least part of the night. And... uh, I was running the door while they were playing their set. All I remember, like I didn't see the vast majority of it, I just heard this incredible din coming down the hallway. It was like this guitar that sounded like a gigantic electric razor, you know? And the music they were playing was not the kind of generic hardcore thrash of the day. It was something different, you know? And the, the singer was actually like singing, you know, rough and gravelly, but he was singing. So I, I couldn't really tell what was going on, but I, I liked it. 
<clears throat> and at one point, all this smoke started billowing out of the room and rolling down the hallway <laughs> where I was taking tickets. And I said, screw it. I got to see what this is all about. So I go through the smoke just in time to see the Destructo finale finish of an anti-scene show, which involved, you know, mannequin heads and flash pots and smashed guitars and walls of feedback and smoke and uh, blood. And I was like, whoa. And they were the opening. Band. They were the opening. So you I was had like, to follow that. I was like. <laughs> I don't want to follow these yeah, guys. Right. <laughs> I don't want to do this. But we did. And uh, my, my band live was certainly hit or miss. We, we were not a consistently good live band. But I guess we were entertaining. I don't know. People seemed to like us. So we played our usual kind of ramshackle set and whatever. But anti-scene, like, just so completely stole the night that night. And I just kind of like with Gigi, I just stayed in touch, you know, maintained contact. And then I got to return the favor a few months later by booking them for their very first ever road trip. And they drove all the way from Charlotte to Miami to play a show. And then they drove back. That's a long wow. drive, man. Yeah. Miami's like far down. Oh, the, yeah. It's, that's I a long. I only played Miami once, but it was it's like another country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It literally, it really is like yeah. another country. It's pretty. Uh, Miami's my favorite city in in Florida because you feel like you do feel like you left the country. You know, yeah, it's pretty cool. I did when I was there for sure. Yeah. Um, how early into anti scene? This was early anti scene. Yeah, like, they had a couple EPs out. Maybe they had or? nothing out at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, they they started in November of '83, and this was July of '84. Okay. And so they've been together less than a year at this point, and um, they hadn't released the Drastic EP yet. Oh. Okay. So, and this is like original lineup, uh, pre-drastic. Wow. You know, about as primal as it gets. You know, they've been around less than a year at this time. Right. So you, that, you've remained uh, friends with them all this time? All this time, except for one really brief, not brief, uh, it was like 14-year period, 14 years-ish, where we just lost touch. Okay. You know, just like the usual lifetime circumstances just sort of got in the way. And yeah, for, I missed an entire. I missed a fourteen-year period. So a brief, of anti, yeah, a brief, brief right? Quick fourteen years. <laughs> okay, well, fast forward. How did you end up playing bass in anti? Well, as usual, it's kind of a long story, but <laughs> we got time. I drove an hour and a half to get here. We're going to tell some stories. Um, twenty eleven. They played a gig up in uh, Massachusetts at a record store called uh, Rebel Sound, okay. which was in, I want to say Waltham. I'm probably wrong. Whatever. If you go to my website, malcolmtent.net, and click on the uh, performance log, oh. you will see the exact date and location of that show. Actually, you won't because I didn't play there. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but it's there. Anyway, they played a gig in Massachusetts, and I hadn't seen him in 14 years. I was like, I got to see the boys, man. It's been so long. I got I to gotta see them. So I drove up there, and I was like, hey, you know, old times, you know. I hadn't seen these guys in forever. It was awesome. They played a classic set, as always. And it was just like, yes, I remember this. This is so good. 
And um, after they were done playing, I was talking to Joe Young, the late and very lamented Joe Young, their guitar player. And I said, you know, I've started playing solo acoustic music and I, I want to I hit the road. And he said, well, why don't you come down to uh, our record store in Lenore and, and play on our front porch? I said, yeah, why don't I? That was like exactly the opening I, I wanted. Right. So I made a few phone calls, booked a short run of gigs in North Carolina. Two, uh, you know, I was like off and running. And then Joe said, oh man, we can't do it because we're, we're, we're playing that weekend. We, we, we picked up shows and so we can't do the show at the record store. And I was like, well, how about you just have me open for you? And I, maybe he liked my audacity. I don't know. He said, yeah, all right. I'll run it by Jeff and yeah, maybe we'll do that. And they did it. They had me open up for them at a show in Hickory and at a show in Fayetteville. They didn't have to do that. And that but, was your acoustic stuff. Yeah, solo acoustic. And those are actually the first ever road shows I played. Oh, wow. Like real proper tour dates opening for anti-scene in, in Hickory and in Fayetteville. And it was great. And we stayed in touch. And fast forward until uh, 2019 when I uh, got a text one day saying, would you, like, would you like to play bass guitar for the South's premier boogie band <laughs> from Jeff Clayton? And I looked at him. I was like, oh, my God, he sent this 14 minutes ago. Shit, I got to get on this now. And I texted back. I said, yes. And I was like, fuck, I blew it. 14 minutes, man. <laughs> I know he must have. He must, I don't know, I didn't know why. He must why. have thought you were ignoring him, probably. You know, or he must have already gotten somebody else Six by Six other now. Like, offers, maybe. You know. I was like, fuck. And a few minutes later, he texted back and said, okay, I'll call you later. I was like, ooh, this is intriguing. I didn't know what was going on. Right. I just knew that he needed a bass player. And to make the, the long story short, I'll make it long. I don't care. Um, we went back and forth a little bit and he said, okay, you're like the number one contender. I'll let you know on Monday, this being Saturday. It's like, oh, can I survive this tension until Monday? Later that afternoon, he texts back, okay, you're in. We've got this tour coming up with I Hate God and the Obsessed. It starts in whatever, 10 days, something like that. You know, I think we played at some of those dates in the Northeast without he got the obsessed yes. in 2019. Yeah, yeah. yeah those are the New dates. York I can, and Baltimore. Yeah, yeah I yeah. couldn't do. Yeah, yeah. That's what awesome, a, man. Yeah, what a great tour to be on. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Really great. That's jumping right in. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, cool. Big tour. Very little time to prepare. Let's do it. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll send you a set list tomorrow. I'm like, all right. The tension's building, but I know I can make it till tomorrow. Later that night, the set list arrived. I was like, okay, this is real. This is legit. So I learned the set at home. Like I just grabbed all my anti-scene records, right. you know, yeah. you know, made a CD of it and just played along. Got it down, drove to Charlotte. Rehearsal was at four o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. 13 and a half hour drive. I arrived at 3.58 p.m. at the rehearsal studio, walked in, plugged in, 
one, two, three, four, boom. Wow. Rehearsed again the next day and then left for Atlanta for the first gig the day after that. That's pretty badass. Yeah. I'm going to agree with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, the reason I can do that is because we killed it. You know, and there's, there's plenty of video out there. You know, you can see it. I mean, it ain't bragging if it's true. Right. We, we killed it. And it, I think it's maybe just because we've known each other for so long. Like, none of us had ever played before. But it was just it was natural. You know, and I, I'd always had this sort of fantasy. You know, I was, always thought, you know, man, maybe I'll, I'll write to Jeff or call him and ask if I could play one show with Anti-Scene. Just one. If they would let me play bass with them for a show. That would be really cool. And then we had 10. Right. And then they're like, well, okay, the situation's kind of unsettled, but if you can help us get through this year, that'd be really, that'd be great if you could do it. We got all these shows booked and just fill in for the, for the year. I was like, no problem. All I wanted was one. So this is all bonus. Right. And then as it went along, they were just like, you know what? we don't feel like auditioning anybody else you're in. It's like, yeah. So does the distance create, uh, I mean, a lot of bands work yeah, travel and with, uh, but that's a long 13 and a half hours yeah. is not, you know, two hours, four hours. Yeah. So how does that work? Obviously, you know what you're doing at home. You went down there and played the whole set, but like, as far as writing, uh, I, are you guys writing new material? Will there, will there be new anti-scene or can you at liberty to speak of this? Absolutely. We've got uh, two new projects in the works right now. We've got a full-length album that we're working on. And um, I've heard distinct rumors of a project with Tesco V. Oh, wow. I'm pretty sure Jeff's gone public with that already. And, um, you know, there's always ideas for singles and comps and stuff like that. But what we're definitely focusing on right now is a new album. As down as I am on modern technology, I've got to admit it's made it really easy to collaborate with dudes who are the better part of 800 miles away. Yeah. Right. You know, Dropbox, Facebook, Zoom yep. chats. We're just doing all this stuff virtually. You know, basically they get together and hash out the music ideas. Um, I've been writing most of the lyrics for the new album. Okay. So, like, I write the lyrics, I send them to Jeff. He gives it either a thumbs up or a thumbs down, because obviously I'm writing for his voice, right. for his perspective. So if he likes it and it flies, then it goes into the use column. And um, I guess what they do is, like, Russ, our guitar player, and Barry, our drummer, they do most of the brainstorming on the music. Jeff will, you know, figure out how the lyrics fit into their music, and they put it together They'll cut a demo, send it to me. I'll figure out a bass part for it, send it back to them. And such is an album crafted in this modern day and age. Right. But when it comes time to record it live, we're going we're gonna to do it for real in a studio with all four of us there together. And, you know, we're probably going to have pre-production rehearsals, I would imagine, like really hammer it out and right. get the chemistry right. Stuff is good, man. The, awesome. It, it sounds like an anti-scene album. And will Anti-Scene do any traditional touring? Because I know the band doesn't do much traditional touring these days, right? Not, it's, well, I'll go out on a limb and say not nearly as much as I would like to, because right. I'm, you know, just a, a road maniac. Right. But, um, 
Yeah, every, every, the other guys, they've got like, you know, they've got obligations, right. you know, Un unlike me, they have lives. So and they're they, older guys, but, right? You know, well, we all are. Well, I mean, right, but like families and... <laughs> yeah, you know, families and right. they work and all that. So touring is, you know, not as much of an option, but the way it, it stands now is like for the right offer, like if something really good came our way, we would do it. Right. And, that, and that's, that's kind of it. It's like we're saving our vacation days for the the right offer right you know we'll we'll entertain any good offer uh, but it's got to be good <laughs> sure yeah understandable yeah hopefully those like you know, chaos and tejas or stuff like that comes back like those like fests right like down in, that would be perfect man we like, were supposed to play muddy roots last year oh yeah before yeah. it got scrubbed and then uh they announced muddy roots 2021 and we weren't on the bill oddly enough i don't know why hmm. I'm not too pissed off about that. Maybe just enough. <laughs> yeah, man, what but whatevs. I don't, I don't the book fuck, these man. things. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how these things work. Dude. Don't particularly care either. <laughs> yeah, apparently that there's that Psycho Las Vegas uh, festival that all the European bands can't. They're not coming into the country. Uh, yeah, they I can't that. do that. And there's all wow. sorts of cancellations and whatnot. Yeah, it's nuts. I mean, besides that, there's this really cool thing they were doing in <clears throat> Texas uh, the Rule Breakers Ball, which is a lot of the, the Confederacy of Scum bands, like ourselves, Rancid Vat, uh, Before I Hang, um, like, you know, fellow travelers with anti-scene. Right. And we managed to get one of those off in 2019 in San Antonio, and that was a blast. Yeah, I bet. Blast and a half. That was one of the, one of the nuttier shows I've played <laughs> in my day. Um, this, this, it's, it's kind of a funny GG-related story. Um, if any of you guys have seen some of the video from his very short 1992 tour when he played San Antonio and a bunch of dudes like jump on stage, there's a huge pig pile and a big brawl and the show, you know, stuff gets knocked over and Gigi's like in his element, you know, he's like <laughs> reveling in this. A bunch of those dudes showed up at the Rule Breakers Ball. The guys who pig piled Gigi. Oh, wow. They all, they, they've apparently been active in the scene all these years and they they like a rambunctious rowdy good time and they showed up at our gig and like jeff knew them all and you know it was totally friendly you know but it was right. like this element of extra added mayhem right and it was great it was just great one one of my favorite shows ever yeah texas is kind of like one of those it's a vast state with a lot of like wide open areas between the cities but like San Antonio, particularly, uh, there always seems to be some kind of craziness that happens down that in that city. I believe it. I mean, that's where Rancid Vat is based now. And basically, if they didn't think the city was wild and crazy enough, they probably wouldn't be there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last year, man, 2020 was like a, a fucking drag. And uh, how, how did that impact you as, in general, like as far as... Well, you know, as far as me as a human being, obviously all of my buttons were pushed the same way that everybody else's buttons were pushed. But I'm I'm just sort of naturally a can-do sort of dude. So I figured this is what we got. I'm just going to focus in on my mail order and the label, TPOS. And that's what I did. Like for a while there, I was doing double gangbusters on the mail order. It was crazy. Um I was fulfilling like 20 something mail orders a day, wow. you know, for like used records and label stuff and all that. 
And then uh, with Anti-Scene, we just said, you know what? Screw it. If we can't play a live concert, we're going to do a broadcast. So we did two of those, one in June and one in October. And um, we, we built an entire like nightclub staging area in our rehearsal space from the ground up and hired a film crew, hired a sound crew and lights. And we put on a full blown concert that we did live over Facebook. Wow. And we, you know, did two of those. And for each one of those, we have released or are going to release a full length LP. Um, you know, we, we just maximized. We did what we could with what we had, which I think is a common thread with the four of us in that band. And then I myself back in Connecticut just continued chugling on, man. Just did whatever I could do. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard that I was able to just keep being a mail order guy and a, a label guy. Well, we were talking earlier, going through all the Gigi stuff. And um, one of the, I, I look back at that era as almost like the Wild West in some ways. You know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, you you read like a Western that takes place in the 1800s and there's like this frontiersman attitude where there's no laws in certain cities and things happen. And and just um in the in the weird scrutiny that everything is under these days, that time where there wasn't necessarily like things can happen like below the surface and uh, and are allowed to develop and creatively expand without people necessarily having these very rigid opinions about it. And I feel like that time is like over, you know, in a lot of ways. You know mm, what I, mean? I, I tend to disagree with that, believe it or not. Um, I think that's giving a little too much cre credence to the power of social media and the internet. Cause I came to the conclusion a while ago that social media is populated with 10 billion people who would never say anything to your face. Oh yeah. That's ever. Yeah. But on social media, they'll type it out and they're doing it in front of an audience who would then chime in when in real life they never would. So it's like a completely artificial sort of dialogue that's going on there. Cause when I go out in the real world, which is where I prefer to spend most of my time, you know, <laughs> yeah, I have definitely. conversations with people all the time about stuff that would be shot down immediately on social media. You know, but this, this, this is real life. These are real people, you know, and face-to-face -face dialogue and face-to-face -face conversation is a universe apart from social media dialogue and social media communication. And I think the same thing goes with music and art and creativity. It's like if we had a bunch of people right here, right now in this room making music or whatever, it would come out way different than it would if it were done um, according to the norms of the internet. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be under that scrutiny. It would just be us here doing it. And we could record a cassette and make it and give it to our friends completely outside of that internet social media thing. And it would happen. And I see a lot of that. Yeah. I think maybe the, the last like 15 months or so, because not, I mean, it, the world that I lived in evaporated for the most part. You know, it's just like, you know, I had all these tours lined up and, you know, all this just disappeared, you know. Then you have all these second doubts about, like, what am I really doing? You know, like, what, you know, 
does that is that real? Did I die? Is this like another like multiverse, like one of those things where you you, you skid off into like a different reality? You know, right? A lot mm -hmm. of this like very deep, you know, kind of ponderings of like reality. I think happened to me during twenty twenty. You know, it's been a tough year and a half in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, that's what I meant when I when I said that my buttons were pushed the same way that everybody else's buttons were pushed. You know, we're and I even hate to admit this, but, you know, the human being is a herd animal and our herd instincts are hardwired. So we all, whether we like it or not, we're affected by this thing, you know, and I, w I will always like to think of myself as being hermetically sealed off, but it's yeah. not true. Right. Oh, know? yeah. It really isn't. I realize the same thing, too, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, pretty much a loner for the most part. I live alone. Like, I don't interact with a whole lot of people like on it. Oh. Prior, you know, definitely not during 2020, but in my normal life. But I would have these like cues to go out and do things, band practice, touring, you know, going to shows, whatever. And when all that stuff's gone, like you really start to evaluate and look at, at yourself and you realize that you're not so much of this like loner, you know, lone wolf kind of guy, you know. Yeah. You still got to go to the post office at yeah. some point. And, <laughs> yeah, and even know. that was like something you couldn't necessarily do either. You know, I know it was while. a big deal. Like all these things were a big deal. Grocery shopping was a big deal. You know, whether I liked it or not or whether I thought it was or not, it was. Yeah, right. Uh -huh. And then that's the thing, you know, there's no getting around the fact that whatever your opinion of everything is, it is what it is. Yeah. And you can't get around that. That sucked. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, I, you know, the anti-scene things that you guys did during the quarantine, uh, I actually, I have the first one and I, I enjoy the fuck out of that. So I think it's a, a real positive thing that came out of that. Yeah. Career <laughs> it sounds highlight. great. Uh, it looked great. So that was awesome. But another cool thing that came out of the quarantine is you started doing a thing called Tent Talks Tunes. Uh, TTT, Tent Talks Tunes. Which is a uh, weekly, yeah. hour long, hour or so long live broadcast through fa your Facebook page. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I got hip to that maybe a little later, maybe over the last three or four months, but you've been doing it for over a year now. I believe over a year I hadn't really been keeping track, but yeah, sounds about right. And that was a result of the quarantine. You weren't doing that pre-quarantine. Only sporadically. Right. Like, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. Like I, I would go sometimes and do live streams on Facebook. Like if I like had some records to sell. Right. You know, like my, my basement is set up like a record store. So I would like take the camera down or the phone or whatever you kids call it these days and um, go live. It's like, hey, hey look, here's the Beatles section. It's kind of overstocked. Ah, look at this great copy of Mo Magical, Mono Magical History Tour Mono. If anybody wants it, let me know. So I'd do right. that every once in a while. And of course, I'd always talk about the records and the histories behind them and the stories behind them. So that was already kind of in place. And um, I was actually, there's the anti-scene connection is because Jeff... Jeff Clayton of Annie Scene, he started doing a weekly broadcast to the to the people, and um, I said, "Well, you know, I've got part of the story too. Do you mind if I jump in on this and tell Annie Scene stories and whatnot?" He said, "Sure, do it," and it just naturally grew out from there. I just started doing my own thing, uh, talking about primarily records and music and music history and record history and stuff that I'm morbidly obsessed with. And 
It's a lot of fun. It's very cool. Like it's also between the thing you do and the thing Jeff does, it takes up two hours of my week that I really can't afford to spare. But <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I do because they're very cool. Yeah, they're you know? fun. Like I, uh, I watch Jeff's live every every I, Tuesday. I, I never miss to. it. I try. You to. know, I try to do the same with yours. Yeah, uh, which I appreciate. Yeah, it's just very. It's cool. It's almost like uh, you know your physical record store has been gone for a while, unfortunately, and you still do record shows and travel around and stuff but this is all almost like a it's almost like a new idea you're kind of kind of have like this same interaction you would have with people at your record store but you know when i'm on there there's a lot of people comment on there and that that's what i really all like over the world yeah i mean yeah. yeah i mean people from sweden and new zealand and germany and canada and all over the u.s it's it's really nice and that's the thing that i always try to do with the store you know, like Saturday afternoons were my favorite at the store because there were no, like the phone basically wasn't ringing. There were no, there's nothing to take care of, no distractions, just me and the people at the store. And, you know, we would just ha hang out and talk about records all day. Oh, kid, you, you think that band Old Time Religion is cool? They're cool, but here's where they got it from. You know, playing some Captain Beefheart, and they're like, oh my God, I didn't know anybody else sounded like this. You know, making those connections. And One of my favorite memories from Trash was the, the tail end of you being there. I, don't, I hadn't been there in a while, and I went in. I, I, was, I either had a Laughing Hyena shirt on or I was looking for a Laughing Hyena's record. And uh, somehow we get to John Brandon. Mm. And you went down behind the counter and pulled up two easy action seven inches oh yeah which i had no clue existed because once again this was probably just the beginning of the internet where you didn't know what the hell was going on unless you saw it or heard it yeah um that was uh amazing to me You're like have you heard this and i'm like no what's that you know, yeah this is john's new band and then put it on and of course it blew my mind and uh it was just stuff like that you know that happened there all the time and i yeah. guess you know I'd like to shift gears a little bit to talk about the record. Sure, man. Go ahead. Let's do it. You know, uh, it's just such it. It comes up literally, like we said earlier, uh, probably every constantly, pod, probably it's every constantly, podcast yeah. we ever did. Yep. There's me coming from this end of the state. I was an, uh, 45 minutes east of here. So it would take oh, yeah. me two hours to get the trash. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, you, you I think you were actually closer. Although you're in closer. New York. I'm like. Oh, it was like a 15 minute drive from Grand yeah. to get to trash. Um, so. But still, it was such, it, it just comes, no matter if we're doing an episode about Gigi Allen or Slayer or a movie or no matter what, it, it always, always comes up. So, I mean, it's kind of overwhelming. I don't even really know where to start with it because <laughs> mm. uh, we talk about it so much. But like, do you, I mean, do you, you must hear this all the time. I assume you hear this all the time. Do you not hear this all the time? Like how important oh, yeah. that store was. Yeah. You do. Okay. I mean, people like all over the East Coast know about the store. I mean, I, I would talk to people and all, just all up and down the East Coast and knew about Trash American Style. All Absolutely. over the world, I would like to think. Yeah, well, I mean, specifically, <laughs> I just know from like over the years of just traveling and touring and talking to other dudes and bands, you know, that's that was like their route, you know, like up and down. Yeah, you know, the 80s and right. 90s and whatnot. Because I live so far away, it, it was awesome to have that place, but it sucked for me because it was like almost like I had to go on a mini tour to go. 
Yeah. You know, and I had not a lot of money and a shitty car and mm. I would have to worry about it breaking down and all that stuff. But uh, I can imagine you were probably there a lot more well, than Well, actually, was. not really, because when I was in high school, I, I, I didn't have a car or anything like that. Oh, plus so, you moved. Well, I, I went to college, right? right? So I had to rely on this, this kid, uh, uh, Jim Califas, to drive me there with him. And you might, I don't know if you remember him. He's like some, there's been so many people, but he was like um, one of the people that uh, was a gateway to a lot of cool stuff, um, like musically and like punk, you know, punk rock, hardcore type stuff. And uh, that's how I found out about Trash American Style with him. But, you know, I needed wheels. Like I didn't have a car or anything like that. So I had to rely on other people. I would borrow my parents' car occasionally and, so it wasn't like I was a fixture there because I had to travel. To me, that 15 minutes was like too far to like ride my bike, really, you know. And, sure. But it yeah, was Carmel also, to Danbury. Yeah, like try, you know, to ride my bike from Carmel to Danbury. I mean, you could do it, but it wasn't really something that I was looking to do it back then, you know. Uh, you know, like most punk hardcore kids back then, you you go to shows in Providence or Boston or Connecticut or wherever, and you'd make friends. So I had friends from the Rhode Island area, from North Kingston and Providence. So they would drive to my house in eastern Connecticut. So for them, it was almost a three-hour journey down there. It's crazy. Um, but we would re- religiously do it. So if I had lived closer, you would probably like be really sick of me. <laughs> you probably not want to be here right now because I probably would have been there uh, constantly. Man. And uh, I'm sure you had people that were there, like almost every day. Oh, definitely. We had we had people there who were there every single day. Right. Um, you know, it, it it took a lot to try my patience, and if somebody did, I made it known. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you have to. I mean, I, I've done a little bit of time more recently, in recent times, working in record stores, mm-hmm. and everyone knows about the record store punishers. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm never sure. heard that terminology before, but I know what you're talking about. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, it's got to be difficult on your end, but like, it, it just seemed to be such an important place for people, even beyond music. Um, there was a documentary that that did get finished that uh, you were in. Oh, I need uh, that record. Yes. Uh, what was it called? I need that record. I need that record. Right. Yes. Have you seen that? Yeah, I saw it. it was good. Yeah, and that was that was like uh, kind of focused on the closing of the store. Yeah, which was very tough to watch for me sitting in my living room. <laughs> you know, I was not able to be there on the last day, but I did go towards the end. Yeah. You know, and it was, uh, and I hadn't been there in a while at that point, and uh, even so, it was a very emotional thing. You know, so. Even beyond the music, I mean, the the store was so much more than that. Yeah, you know, and, we uh, tried. Yeah, you did. I mean, you did it. You know, and yeah. it, it left a huge void uh, in this state. Well, you can thank the landlord for that. I, I had no say in the matter, and that was uh, as far as and I've told the story over and over and over again. As far as I was concerned, we were ready to sign another ten year lease and keep going. Right. But the landlord presented us a situation that it simply wasn't going to happen and we were out. We were never offered even a chance to negotiate or even if he had said, okay, dudes, I'm tripling your rent. Can you do that? No, we can't. Okay, you're out. That never even happened. It was simply presented to us that we were going to be out of there. So it wasn't, I, I cannot stress that enough. It wasn't my decision. Right. And um, that was right when the real estate bubble 
of 97 was at its height. And so we looked for other spaces, you know, and everything was just so unrealistically priced. We could not afford it because the one thing I've always, I, I always give credit where it's due. The landlords that we had were up until the moment they shafted us, the best landlords I ever had. Oh man. You know, they, they only gave me one rent increase in the 18 and a half years that we were there. And it was for 10 bucks a month. Wow. You know, and you know, the property was always, you know, you were there, you saw it, it was always very well maintained. It was always clean. It was location. I mean, it was perfect. It was just perfect. So, okay. By the time 2007 rolled around, we're still paying 1989 prices. I just, the thing I resent is that we were just never given a chance. He never gave us a chance to match the offer that he got from that other place that ended up moving in there. So, you know, what are you going to do? This was the same landlord the whole time? Whole time. Yeah. They were great people. I really liked them. But business is business. Right. And, uh, you know, as as it is, and this is kind of ironic about the whole thing, what's kind of ironic about the whole thing is that when it went down, like I'll never forget the day it actually went down and we had, we knew like Kathy and I knew that something was afoot because that, that jerk off who was in the shop next door to us, whose name I won't mention. He tried to buy us out on a couple of occasions. Um, you know, he really wanted our space so he could expand his mangy business and we weren't interested in moving. We weren't interested in quitting. We wanted to stay. So we told him no. So, he went behind our back and started talking to the landlord and making him offers, which is how that went down. So we, we knew that something was afoot because this guy wouldn't go away. And the landlord, to his credit, approached us one day and said, look, this guy made us an offer. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'll let you know. He still didn't give us a chance, you know, to meet or beat this idiot's offer, but he, he did at least let us know that something was afoot. And this dragged on for like months. You know, like even when we were having our, um, our uh, 20th anniversary celebrations in late 06, November of 06, we knew that something was going to go down. We just didn't know what, but we didn't say anything, you know, until we find out for sure. So you figure November of 06 to May of 07, that's seven months right there. Right. They nice sort of had this, you know, sort of, sort of Damocles, sort of Damocles hanging over our heads the whole time. And um, I went into the shop one day and it was really weird because uh, Kathy didn't really spend a whole lot of time at the store at that time. She was mostly offsite making stuff. She'd make jewelry and, you know, right. keep the place stocked with the piercing jewelry, you know, which is very popular. People right. love that. So she was just making jewelry most of the time. And I did, I did most of the daily running of the shop and I uh, had a part-time kid working for me. Uh, this one day Kathy went in and I went in a little bit later and I walked in and it was Kathy, the kid who was working for me and the kid's girlfriend. And I walked in, I'm like, Hey, what's up everybody. And they were just like, the viewer, the, the listeners can't see this, but it's just like a morgue in there. Right. And I said, uh, what's up? And this kid's girlfriend just said, I'm sorry. And I was like, all right, this is it. It's official. 
and like Kathy had been crying with, for her was like, she was tough as nails, but she'd been crying. I was like, okay, this is it. We're done. When, when's it going to happen? May 1st. All right. So I immediately got on to the computer, which we had had for about a year or so at that point and composed an email, sent it out. That was it. Said, that's it. You got till May 1st. Come and get it. So the irony of the whole thing is that I was not completely, utterly shattered by the whole thing. I was, you know, I was just, I just always had that sort of can-do attitude. It's like, okay, this is what we got. Okay, we have to do this, 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 and this to get from here to there. I've always had this very laser-like focus on the task at hand. And so I, I just got into that mode. And I think what's more important is that I was really burnt. Right. I was burnt on the whole thing after 21 years. Running a store. Yeah, running yeah. a store, you know, which is nine days a week and 28 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always called it TTE, which is the total trash existence. I was living TTE, total trash existence. You know, I'd run the store for however many hours it took every day to run it. And then I would go home with a great big list of things to do for the customers. Gonna make a tape for this guy, make a VHS for this guy, burn a CD for this guy, find such and such for this guy. Um, it was like that. So I'd just go home and work more. Right. And I didn't know how burnt I was until... Let's see, it was May 4th, May 5th was the Saturday that we were finally moved out and packed up and we were out of there. My, you know, I, I automatically started to wake up at the usual time. I thought, wait a minute, I don't have to do this. And I turned around and I went back to sleep and I slept until I don't even know how late. And after that, it was just like, okay, we're done. I was just, I was really burnt. Right. And um, I just never really quite looked back, you know? Well, something you said about taking a list home of things to do for customers. Yeah. Reminds me of another time when I was in there. And uh, you remember uh, Profile Records was yeah. doing the two records on one CD? Oh, yeah, they did yeah. a Chromax. Oh, yeah. Leeway. And, right. Yeah. Right. I think it was Profile that did those. Yeah, they did those. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Profile. I remember seeing the Chromax one, and I was, uh, I was like, oh, I need this. So... Uh, I brought it up to the counter. I didn't look at the price tag. And you were like, you sure you want this? And I was like, yeah, of course I want it. You're, and you were like, what's well, $35 or whatever it was. Because it was out of print. This was long after they were done. Yeah. And, uh, you, and you were like, how about if I just burn you a copy? Mm -hmm. Which that's I've never had that experience at any other record store. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you know, part of your burnout probably comes... <laughs> from like you said taking a list of uh favors home yeah that's you know but that's like one of the things that it made it more than a store and like yeah. the the last time i went there when i knew you were closing uh, i think you told me and my friends when we came in i don't think i even knew before that uh but it was really cool because you you had like where the bathroom was in the back there was like the uh the things you walk through, right? Yeah, the beaded curtain. And there were so many records back there, and we would always peek back there, and there was, see, there was just tons of stuff back there. 
and I don't know how it came to be, but you were like, everything's for sale, even back there, dig away. And we were just like, holy shit. <laughs> and we spent like hours back there. You know, I digging. vaguely remember that. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, it was just like stuff and stuff. And it was, it was really cool. I mean, it was uh, shitty to find out the store was closing. but Well, I hope you found something. Oh, of course. I never <laughs> left there. I was never driving two hours to go home empty-handed. Yeah. Well, true that. Really. Impractical if you... That's for damn sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I just have so many great memories of that place. And as burnt out as you say you were, uh, there are a lot of people, and you know this, that feel the same way. So although you were maybe at the end of the road with it, you brought a lot of joy to a lot of people over the years. So, Well, I'll tell you, honestly, the only time that I feel like really feel bad about it is when I have these kinds of conversations. Right. Well, I don't want you to feel bad. I don't feel bad. Yeah, I don't want you to feel bad. You should uh, feel like the time you spent there and the the burnout you felt didn't go, wasn't wasted. Oh, no, not at all. There are people that that, that really cherish the memories of being there. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier for me, like musically. Yeah. I was just a hardcore kid. And I liked, you know, 10 bands. (laughs) And then I liked 20 bands. And then, you know... I we would always have conversations about stuff you were buying and, and not in the annoying way because there are record store guys that are annoying. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. It was always informative and it was always, uh, I think, in, you know, good intentions on your part. And that yeah. developed me checking out things I probably wouldn't normally check out. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that was kind of my way of repaying the debt that I owed to the great record stores of South Florida you know, living in unincorporated Northwest Dade County was relentlessly grim. You know, it was, we were surrounded on all sides by hostile forces. Right. So to be able to go into a place like Open Books and Records, especially, that for me was my number one, but also Yardbird Records, Yesterday and Today Records, Blue Note, Underground, where I could walk into one of those places and the older as I perceived it, the older, cool person would take a dumb, snotty kid like me seriously and actually entertain my questions and be helpful and get up from their lunch and go get something from the back without complaining. Right. I never forgot that. Yeah, it's important. It's important stuff for people that, like us, that the arts mean something. Yeah. They They mean a hell of a lot. Yeah. So, you know. You turned me on to the Melvins and Ooh. all kinds of stuff that I still love today. I know? saw the Melvins poster in the bathroom even yeah. as I was here. <laughs> right, right. That's permanent damage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You've done permanent damage. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> well, I want to thank you in person. You know, it was, you know. You're welcome. I'm glad to see that you picked up the baton and ran with it. You know, that always right. makes me triply happy <laughs> when I run into people. And the, the store's been closed for over 14 years at this point. Right. Think about that over 14 years and I'm still able to sit down with a couple of trashies, which is always my affectionate name for you guys, a couple of trashies and we're talking, oops, with a couple of trashies and we're talking about music and we're talking about the arts and stuff. We're still here. We're still doing it. You know, the, the physical brick and mortar might be populated with something incredibly dull, boring and irrelevant right now, but the idea lives for literally it lives on forever as long as there's a human being who's willing to pick up the baton and run with it right so cool Uh, and that's what i like about the tent talks tunes thing Mm. so people should check that out because it's kind of it's not 
exactly the same experience of, as being in trash was 14, 20, 25, 30 years ago. But it, it kind of opens that doorway a little bit where, you know, it, it brought me back a little bit to those times. So that's cool. That's cool. You know, you can communicate with people about things that are happening in the now. Yeah. It's just through a computer screen. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I got to I gotta hit, get hip to that because I, I, um, I, I stay away from Facebook for the last few years. But uh, something like that, I think I should check out for sure. Yeah, there are little nooks and crannies within the Facebook that are worth checking out. And Jeff's live thing and your live thing are two things I've kind of become hooked on. Yeah. Well, you know, the beauty of it with modern technology is even if you don't want to go to Facebook, I archive everything on my YouTube right. channel. You, that's, that's probably more my speed, I think, yeah. the YouTube channel for sure. Yeah. And same thing with Annie Scene. We actually have a, a YouTube channel now with all of Jeff's talks and live videos and nice. all kinds of fun so stuff. So Jeff's are archived as well. So they're all yeah. archived. Okay. Yeah. The, we got... The, I'm, I'm, I actually run the Any Scene YouTube channel, so I put all the content on there myself. So, yeah. It's the all only there. thing about that is you can't talk shit to Malcolm. Watch. Yeah, it's yeah. Fun. Well, I'm you know. Quiet, really. <laughs> in general, when I, when I observe, you know what I mean? Like, Lur- I, I think, these, I think like, they call posters. you a lurker these days. <laughs> a lurker, yeah. Exactly. I'm a lurker. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And you're good at it. <laughs> Very good at Master it. Master lurker. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could just go on and on gushing about trash. Well, I, I think I said it. what I had to say about yeah. it. You know? Well, the um, thing that was important, too, is that you got to remember a place like Danbury, Connecticut, and Carmel, you know, like where I grew up and where the store was located. It was a very conservative place for the most part. You know what I mean? And, and um, you know, as a kid in high school, there was like three people that I knew that liked anything that wasn't just like Journey or like Me too. Mm-hmm. Michael Jackson or something like right. that. And you know, and there was um, one small store that was in Carmel called the Book and Record Store, oh. which I used to. I talk about that quite a bit yeah. too. But that, you know, that wasn't like a character. There's no character. Like they had cool records. Like I bought like Road to Ruin by the Ramones there. I got like uh, you know Ace of Spades. You know, like uh, Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden. The books. The book section was excellent. They had like all the Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, mm. like Robert Block, like all that. You know stuff that I still read all the time these days. But so there is like a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of like what lurked in, you know, not to use a, overuse that term, <laughs> what lie beyond like the threshold of like my normal existence, you know? But then yeah. when Jim brought me to uh, trash American style, that's when I realized that it was like the world was like an even bigger place beyond what I was actually able to see. And that 15 minute car ride, you know, when you're, 17 or 16 years old it's forever without a car that's like a trip like you're going somewhere you know yeah like the only times i've ever been to danbury was like my parents or something you know so at that age i was like okay we're gonna take a trip over to danbury you know and, and check out some records and learn about things and you know the, the, the charles manson cassettes like all that sort of stuff i think that was the first time i heard manson's music actually mm. you know might have been in the shop probably so, so yeah it was you know that that's that's the thing about you know, someone on the outside of this might see it as like, oh, who cares? You know, it's like just a place where people bought records. But it really is more than that because it made you aware that the small world that you live in, that there's something beyond that, that you have you have access to that all of a sudden. And then you can go deeper into that or, or not at all. It's, you have options and choices in the world besides just the things that were laid in front of you by your parents or your you know, your community or whatever, you know. We did have people who would do what we called the pivot. 
<laughs> and you can imagine they'd walk in, take about four or five steps and do the 180 and right back out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My mom actually went into the store. Cause like I was saying, I moved away when I, I, well, my parents still live in Carmel, but like I went to college and I remember for like birthday or Christmas or something, they, they bought me something from trash American style. That might've been like one of the Henry Rollins's like, like books or something like that. Yeah. You know, and I was, I was, my mom was always, keyed into the stuff I, I was into, which I thought was really cool about my parents. Yeah, mine wasn't. She was like, yeah. I don't want to even know. Yeah, but we had a lot of parents who would just stay in the parking lot and honk the horn. <laughs> um, and I loved it when people's parents would come in. Yeah. I loved meeting their parents. You know, I'd yeah. like to see, well, where does this weird kid come from, you know? <laughs> it was great. And, and the parents who got it really got it. And even the ones who didn't, just the fact that they would come in. Yeah. Like with the Christmas was the best. Christmas shopping season was the best. You know, he, in comes mom with a piece of paper, like, okay, we know what's, <laughs> we know what's up here. And she would walk up to the counter and this happens so often. Do you have a record by a band called Gorilla Biscuits? <laughs> in, like, does such a thing even exist? Is my kid putting me on? <laughs> It's okay. We got it. Yeah, you got know? <laughs> uh, since you mentioned Christmas, mm. a couple years ago, two years ago, around the uh, Christmas holiday, you did a Trash American style pop-up. Oh, yes. I that, believe that was the only time you've ever done the pop-up. I know you do a lot of selling here and there, but... No, we did a couple. You did? Done a, a, a few, but it, it's, a, it's mostly a problem with finding a place to do it. Right. You know, like when I'm, I'm, I'm actually right on the verge of joining my uh, neighborhood community association so I can use the pavilion that they have in town for a pop-up, like oh, just take awesome. over the whole, it'll be outdoors, but I'm still, I want to take over the entire pavilion and just go nuts for a weekend. Um, but you know, I've filled out the application and no one's gotten back to me and you know, it's like, oh, man. whatever, you know, small town bureaucracy, but, uh, yeah, that pop-up we did, that was God, 2018, I think. Okay, three years ago. Yeah. About three yeah. years. That was fun. That was really fun. That was a and it great was, uh, time. When I walked in, it was in the this weird, like, uh, typical. I guess not weird. A very typical kind of business complex where they'd be like. Well, on the outside, it was kind of typical. Well, right. It wasn't. <laughs> no, no, no. What you created in there was not typical. But like, there'd be like a dentist office in there or insurance. Yeah, nail uh, nail salon was downstairs. Right. Uh, but when you walked up into the you had like two rooms and one was there was people performing in one yeah and then the little shop was set up in the other and when you opened the door and walked in there it smelled like trash yeah i went through a lot of trouble to replicate that the aroma too it smelled like trash <laughs> and it was you know it brought me definitely brought me back yeah a and lot it, of people remarked on that too that it, it, that really it smelled cool. authentic that to me was it did pretty cool yeah, it, was, it was cool it was very cool so i'm hoping for more of those yeah, I mean, um, I've always got my ear to the ground for, and you know, maybe if anybody out there in the greater Danbury area is listening, um, always looking for a spot, especially around the holiday time, to take over and do a, a pop-up trash American-style experience. I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyway. Try me. There will never be another retail, day, everyday record store, trash American-style. I think I know the answer to this. Well, 
people ask me that all the time. Sure. Which blows my mind. 14 and a half years on and people still want to know, am I going to reopen a shop? The answer is I never say never. I have no desire to do that right now. I have no plans to do that right now. But, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Things change. So as it stands right now, I'm, I'm done with brick and mortar. Right. But if, you know, I mean, who knows? Who knows? If, if I, for some reason, got tired of being a rock star or, you know, getting to wake up at two in the afternoon every day. I'm talking myself out of it very rapidly here. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the 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 immediate pat answer is no. Okay. But absolutes are dangerous. Gotcha. So we'll just leave it at that. Okay. I and I, you know, I I, and I tell everybody, man, open your own. You know, <laughs> the there's a lot of real estate out there nowadays. Plenty of storefronts. It's a lot of storefronts, but there's only one Malcolm. Ah, oh, gee. Right? <laughs> Ball's back in my court. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe you can be the first Randy. <sighs> you don't want to do it. No. See, now you know. I've had enough look behind the curtain, man. Yeah, wor- you know, man. I worked man. at a couple of different You, you got to devote your life to it, right. you know, and that might, that might be why people are still wanting to know because... As far as I was concerned, it was not just a job. It was what I did. Right. You know, and and it was, you know, 21 years of interrupted lunches and cold dinners and late nights and early mornings and lists of things to do when I got home and uh, record release dates and orders that were missing half the stuff I wanted and... There were drainers and, um, you know, that was all just a part of it. And those were the aspects of it that I don't miss because I really, you know, I use the phrase again, I was burnt. I ran myself ragged doing that. And at the end of the day, I just, I had to take at least a break at least, you know, and that was sort of, sort of the plan. Like when the landlord chucked us out, we still thought, well, we'll reopen. We're going to take some time off. And we'll find a spot and we'll reopen. Because that's what we did when we moved from Brookfield to Danbury. You know, our original location in Brookfield, one day we got in and the ceiling started dripping water. And as the day went on, it started gushing water. And by the end of the day, the ceiling had fallen in. And our frantic phone calls to the landlord were going unanswered. And we had to move almost all of our entire inventory out into the parking lot so it wouldn't get gushed on and the landlord was nowhere to be found and when we finally got him he was like oh well just uh had the people upstairs come down and uh, take a look at it because the handyman lived upstairs he was like so nonchalant about it we said screw it we're done with this one we're gonna find a better location we are out of here and that's what we did we closed that one down and took the summer off you know did a little bit of road tripping a little traveling here and there and then reopened on Mill Plain Road in Danbury. So we kind of thought we were going to do that again. But as mentioned before, the real estate market was just absurd at the time. It was nuts. Like, you know, we couldn't find anything for less than double, at least double, what we were already, what we were already paying. And, you know, if you've been in the biz, you know that record stores are not cash cows. You know, you do... You make your money, you make a living, you're able to pay the rent and your bills, 
But, you know, except for that one golden moment when alternative rock was king, that was the only time I ever put money in the bank was in the early 90s. You know, and then when the bottom fell out of that, it fell out. And that's what I was talking to bankruptcy lawyers. You know, that's how, oh, yeah. you know, dramatically it can change. And then after that, it you know, it leveled out to a point where we were able to, to maintain. But I went from having a full-time staff of eight to one part-timer by the end. Wow. So there was no way we were going to be able to pay what the market demanded at that time. So we just thought, well, okay, we'll just wait it out. We'll wait it out. And as we were waiting it out, this alternative business model just sort of evolved naturally by doing record shows. And I had this nice little circuit at the colleges selling records at schools, which was wonderful, almost as good as the store, because I was with young kids who were just like hungry for knowledge. Right. At the same time, they were turning me on to stuff. That was the best part was when people would turn me on to stuff. So this exchange of information was going on. And so that just kind of ended up taking over to where we were able to do that without needing a storefront and right. still stay connected with people and still have our hangouts and still talk to people and still be in the swim and learn about stuff. And this is another one of those days I remember we were having a great big tag sale at the house that we used to share together and we were putting stuff out and I still had like the cash register and the alarm system and like all the nuts and bolts hardware for the store. And the cash register was just always kind of there that we were going to use the same cash register in a, in a new store. And we'd had a couple of tag sales and the cash register never went out for sale. And so I'm looking at this cash register and I said to Kathy, should we just sell this thing? And she said, yeah, put it out. And that's when I knew that yeah. we weren't going to, there was going to be no more brick and mortar. That was wow. it. That should be in a museum. It should be. Not I think a tag I, sale. I ended up giving it to somebody like a, someone who a customer. Yeah. Trashy. That's They're like, good. Oh my God, that's the cash register. That's good. Take it. That's you know, good. to this day, I've still got one of the outdoor signs that was in the parking lot, the metal sign that said trash American style records, clothes, books, tapes. Right. I still got it. I have nowhere to put it. It was in the care of a couple of trashies for a very long time. I gave, I, I gave, I gave both the signs away and this one couple took it. And after a while they said, Oh, you know, we can't splitting up. Can't have the sign anymore. Would you take it back? Like, yeah, I guess. So the thing's sitting in my backyard. I got nowhere to put it. If anybody out there wants the, an original trashy American style. Okay. never mind. Randy's got it. I got a lot of room down here. I can take pretty much all this stuff. That's down. all right. That's awesome. Redact that. That's not going to go out on the air. Okay, Randy, it's yours. I'll fight almost anybody. <laughs> you know, the sign would actually almost fit right on the front, it would, right. the facing of that bin. Okay. It's a little, it's a lot wider, but you know, it might work. I will make the 98-minute drive to you. <laughs> well, all right then. I finally got rid of that goddamn thing. TPOS is your record label. Yes, it is. That you've been doing for a long time. For a very long time. And you like to release music on uh, wild formats. Love my weird formats. Love them. Uh, eight tracks. Mm -hmm. uh, you've done some flexies. Flexies. Uh, Four inch lathe cut records. Yep. Yeah. Uh, a 
a lot of cassettes. Love cassettes. Love. I've heard your love for cassettes before on yeah. another podcast. Great format. So is this uh, the label? You're going to keep this going and you're going to continue to put out new music? Or yes. is it going to be focused mainly on your projects or will you put out other people's stuff as well? How does that work with your label? I basically focus on stuff that directly involves me or people who are dead. It's okay. just a lot easier that way. Way easier. Easier to work with the dead. It really is. Or their estates, you know, or whoever it is. Right. Um, like nobody, nobody who's dead is going to break up on you the week after you put out their record. You know, which is why um, if anybody needs 475 Far Cry 7-inch singles from 1991, just give me a call. I can hook you up. Todd. Ah, Todd. You know Todd. Uh, Were you in Far Cry? No, I met Todd at a show at the Anthrax 4,000 years ago for two seconds. Todd's a good guy. I I like Todd. Yeah, Todd's a really good guy. Love him. His band broke up, I think, even before the record came out. Yeah. And that was was probably the last time I tried to release anything by a contemporary band. He's a DC guy. Yeah. Okay. Originally from, I think, Brookfield. But they were great. You know, I liked the band. I saw them live. I loved them. You know, straight edge hardcore. It was very much, you know, the thing happening. I was like, right, let's do it. Great. And, well, you already know the rest of the story. Right. So, But that's why I do what I do with the label. Because I'm not going to break up. Right. I'm never going to break up. <laughs> you know, I'm, I intend to do this till they carry me out. Right. And I know I'm going to work to push my product. And I know that my product is good. I've bought a lot of stuff from you more recently, though. Yeah. Since the uh, YouTube thing. Thank you. Yes. Uh, you keep a lot of uh, being mostly Connecticut, old punk and hardcore alive. Yeah. Uh, like some stuff I got from you today. Uh, Violent Children. Yep. Uh, no Milk on Tuesday. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with either one of these uh, bands. Violent Children, yes. No Milk on Tuesday, no. He's just old Connecticut bands that really, besides maybe being on comps or putting out a single, didn't do much beyond that. Yeah. Um, but it, I think they're great bands, and uh, I assume you do too. Absolutely. And it's cool that you keep that stuff alive. Yeah. I mean, on whatever microscopic level, I mean, it's like New Milk on Tuesday, I might sell one or two cassettes a year. Right. You know? right. right. But it's always gratifying when somebody does because that means somebody out there either remembers or has gone down some internet rabbit hole and discovered them somehow and cares enough to actually send me the five or six bucks for this cassette. Right. You know, and just the fact I'm selling one a year even shows that somebody out there is interested and wants to know. So because you keep a lot of this old Connecticut stuff alive, sorry I'm geeking out. Dude, go ahead. Geek, geek out. Go for it. (laughs) Make it uh, unanimous. Have you ever inquired about doing a repressing of the Connecticut Fun compilation? Well, you know, my friend Joe Snow, um, who took over Inca's records, he did a CD reissue of it. Right. Um, I forget exactly how long ago. And I don't know if it was just because it was on CD, but from what I understand, uh, it didn't sell maybe as many as he was hoping that it would. Um. So that kind of makes me a little bit shy about it. Just be, and just because vinyl is like so expensive to produce. Like, right. I, you know, a guy, I'm a one-man operation. It's just me. And it, it's my money coming out of my rainy 
my rainy day fund. So right. if I'm going to release something, I've got to know that it's going to sell. Sure. I, I, I just can't afford to put out something that maybe I'd really, really like to, but it's just going to sit there. Gotcha. So I, I think it'd be a great idea. It deserves to be yeah, on vinyl. You would think the Youth of Today tracks would sell it alone, considering I don't think those have been released anywhere else, right? I'm pretty sure that's it. I mean, unless, because yeah, there's never been like a Youth of Today anthology of any sort, has there? Not that I'm aware of, no. Because there's those tracks, there's the tracks that came out on the Make It Work compilation 7-inch. Right. Which I'm pretty sure never got reissued. Right. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's really weird. I don't know. I mean, but it's like the, you know, the, the, the stuff I have by Ray Capo, the reflex from pain right. on cassette and the uh, violent children, it's kind of the same numbers. I sell couple of a couple a year, you know, they're, they're just not great big sellers. And I, I think I would love to do a violent children seven inch reissue, yeah. but I just don't think it would sell enough for me to yeah, that's, make it worth my while. You sure, know, sure. there's so many records you know, and titles like that tons of them I, I salute the bands and the labels that specialize in those real niche right releases you know like they, they could do 300 of a title by this really niche band and sell them out and move on to the next one right kind of thing i, I wish i had the ability to market stuff like that because i do a lot of it right cool. cassettes are easy i make them one at a time at home Nothing to it. <laughs> right, 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 right. Eight right. tracks are the same way. Reel-to-reel tapes are the same way. All these bizarre arcane formats are like totally user-friendly. Right. I just make them on demand. And I guess that's become like a CD thing too. You make them on demand. Right. So you don't have to have all this inventory sitting around eating up money. Do you still do eight tracks? Still do eight tracks. Do they sell? Yeah, they do. Kind that's of the, the most bizarre that, one that to me. Yeah. yeah. Can you even buy an eight track player anymore? I mean, you have to look hard. Uh, got to like look hard. For a store yeah. yard sale, maybe. Yeah, because yeah. I, I tried to buy a DAT player recently because I have a bunch Ooh. of... That's even... I couldn't find any. Really? Yeah. Are you gay now? No, dude. Not not anything worthwhile. Like, wow. I wanted to get like a like a rack-mounted like pro mm -hmm. DAT player. I ended up having to talk to Chris Pierce about having DATs like transferred into okay. digital formats. Yeah, DAT was a... If I may be profane, what's a shitty-ass format, man? But that was what everyone was mixing down to like back For in years. the 90s. And then yeah. that's why there's so many lost albums oh, now. Because yeah. they put them on the DAT, and the DAT's disintegrated like almost universally. Yep. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a DAT that you could even play that's why I want anymore, to archive you know? a lot of this stuff that I have, man, for sure. Yeah, you better get on that quick. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. If you can find one. Um, I'll never forget, I used to buy blank cassettes from a place called Terrapin Tapes that was in Brookfield. And um, they were they catered primarily to the Deadhead audience. You know, the hardcore dead tapers and fish oh, tapers. Yeah, yeah, totally, you know, yeah. So they were, they were my wholesale cassette supplier for a really long time. And I would go to the warehouse to pick up cassettes, and I noticed that progressively their inventory of blank cassettes kept shrinking and their inventory of like blank dats and digital media kept growing. And I was a little bit nonplussed by that because I've always been very suspicious of digital as anybody who ever spent more than five minutes at Trash American Style knows. Highly suspicious of digital. And um, I went there one day, however, you know, however much longer after this transition was starting to take place. And I noticed that they had Boxes and boxes and boxes of Grateful Dead dat tapes 
all just kind of stacked up in a corner somewhere with their DAT players just kind of tossed on top of them. I said, what's up with all that? You guys, like, you invested all this time and effort into DAT. Why are you just getting rid of all those? They don't play anymore. Damn, man. Ugh. And that, that's it. They wouldn't play anymore. And that was it. They were screwed. And I know people who actually did do what you were talking about earlier. They backed up everything that they had on analog to DAT mm -hmm. and then chucked all the analog mm -hmm. masters. Yeah. Bad move. They were SOL, baby. That stuff's gone. Gone. So, yeah, digital's gotten to be a little more reliable over time, but I still don't trust it. Mm. Everything I do digitally, I back up onto some kind of analog format, usually cassette. Cassettes are fine. It seems like cassettes have kind of had a, a resurgence. Yeah. Right? You, yeah. You see I, that with the... Definitely. I mean, yeah. there was a time when, you know, I literally couldn't give them away. Right. Like, I, I never took them off the, the shelves at the store. I always had them, but... Um, you know, they did not hardly sell at all. Right. And then at some mysterious point in like, I guess the early to mid aughts, they started coming back. And I started, I, I like, when I reactivated the TPOS cassette release, I did it by going into my storage and dragging out blank cassettes that I still had. And I, I found all my old folders of Xeroxed cover art I still had tons of it, and I just started remaking cassettes from supplies I already had on hand right. that were left over, and graduating to buying blanks and making new cover art and whatever. And it's been rolling right along ever since. I love it. I like cassettes. cassettes love cool. cassettes. Yeah, I do too, man. Uh, yeah. The ultimate populist medium, you know, especially back in the day, and I, I think I've talked about that on Tent Talks Tunes, you could, as a band, and I learned this from a, a band called Gay Cowboys in Bondage, who were from Fort Lauderdale. And they were the band that I always wanted to be. You know, they were really good musicians. They were funny. They could actually play. They were tight live. They were all the things that Broken Talent wasn't, you know, <laughs> that I wanted to be. And, um, but that sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> It adds to the authenticity of this whole experience. <laughs> Make a noise project out of it. So Gay Cowboys and Bondage opened my young mind when they went to the record store and brought the first ever cassette demo I'd ever seen. And for them, it was actually like a full-length album. It was a 45-minute album, but it was on a cassette. Yeah. And I just I couldn't believe it. You could do that? Like, you could take your band... In your band's music and just record it onto a cassette at home and go to a copy shop and make some inserts on the photocopier and put them together and take them to a record store and put a price tag on it? No way. Right. And people bought those cassettes. And I was like, oh my God, this is a new thing. <laughs> and that was 1984 and I've never stopped. Right. As much as I could anyway. Are there anything, is there anything in the pipeline for the label? Always, always stuff in the pipeline. Anything you can talk about. Really? Yeah, sure. Um, a mission I've been on for a really long time is to track down everybody out there who's got unreleased Gigi Allen stuff yeah. and talk to them and try to get some kind of a deal where I can license it and reissue it. And I have actually done that. Oh, wow. I've at least been in contact with anybody and everybody 
whoever released a GG record that somebody else doesn't already own the rights to. Not everybody is actually ponied up, but I'm working on it. Right. I'm working on it. So the main stream of that kind of stuff that I've got working on is that I'm working on right now is from the disappointments okay. who Gigi played with in 1989, their guitar player, Bob was kind of like me. He taped everything. He taped every show they played. He taped their rehearsals and he had been like out of the scene ever since then, basically. But through the wonders of social media, we established contact and we, the goal is now to release everything he's got from that era. Wow. Which includes reissuing some stuff that came out on 7-inch and 10-inch and other formats. Right. We're going to put it all out. Great. And we've already started with a cassette of rehearsals that nobody had ever heard before. Uh, did you see or hear that? The Dawn's Garage Day 2 cassette? No. Is that on the site? Well, it's at the moment, it's out of print, just oh, at the okay. moment. Because we did a first edition kind of similar to the, the uh, Malcolm Tent Mad okay. Brother Ward cassette. It's numbered. He and the, the, the bass player for the disappointment signed every one of them. Oh, it's the signed, numbered, first printing of that. Ah, I missed the boat on that. Yeah, but there, there's going to be more. They just won't be signed and numbered from here on out. So we did that. Next up is the fabled Gigi Allen and the Disappointments Live in Detroit 1991 oh, wow. performances. And that's something that a lot of people don't even know happened. You know, he actually played two shows with the Disappointments in 91, fresh out of jail. Uh-huh. And that's before he did the Murder Junkies with Merle. And that's it, just two gigs, but they were both taped. Uh-huh. So that's coming out next. And then after that is the Live in Bethlehem 89 soundboard recording. And who on knows? And right. Yes. Great. So that's happening. I've been doing a lot of really fun stuff with King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard, if you guys know them. I know the name. I'm not familiar, I'm not familiar with that at all with that. They, I love that band. I love them. I first heard about them when I was at SUNY Purchase, home of the G.G. Allen live performance from 89. I have that. Yeah. I was at SUNY Purchase selling records, and this kid told me about this band, King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard. I'm like, all right, cool. Put it in the trap. A little while later, I was on tour in England and staying with a guy who has a record label. He puts out all my stuff in England and he had a, um, a uh, what was the format? A Not a mini disc. I guess it was a mini disc. No, it was a three inch floppy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Notice the laughs that got. Wow. <laughs> of this band, King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard. I was like, oh, you've heard of them? It's like, yeah, they're from Australia. They're really great. They just released this album as a total free album. You can do anything you want with it. Release it. So I did this floppy disc. I was like, all right, that's two people I've heard about this band from. I got to check this out. Got home, checked it out. They were great. And they're big, like really big. Like they play, you know, one, two and three thousand seat venues, like I all over the, the world. Name. Yeah. You know, I'm you know the names. I haven't. I'm really surprised I'm ever, ever familiar with them. Yeah, it's it's they're like they're a, they're from Australia. They're a prog band, but they've got a real wacky sense of humor. Top shelf musicians, like ten guys in the band, a lot of fun. And so they released this album as a free album. So I immediately jumped on it because I liked it, and released it on cassette, CDR, eight track, reel to reel. 
I did a hand-lathed seven-inch record of one of the tracks from it. I did all these wacky ambient remixes that I tacked on to the various formats. Just had a blast with it. Just cool. had a lot of fun with it. So I'm mining that vein. They released a bunch of live shows as free use. So I did a bunch of them. Just had an order for two reel-to-reel tapes this morning when I woke up for King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard. So that's a really cool festive thing cool. by a really great band. Got a bunch of that stuff happening and um, got a couple of anti-scene projects in the pipeline, which I'm not totally at liberty to discuss yet. Um, you know, my own stuff. Yeah, I got a lot going on. Okay. Look up TPOS. You'll see. I do. We're, we're at, there you go. <laughs> Smart man you got here, Mike. Smart man. Plus, you know. <laughs> so the partners here, you know. <laughs> um, that's all I got. Yeah, no, that was great, man. This is it was an, uh, an epic. Uh, Just like now. that. Yeah. <laughs> Gee whiz! <laughs> Thanks for taking time out to come up here. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it was fun, man. It's worth the ninety-eight minute drive. No problem. <laughs> why don't you like you normally do at the beginning of your show, though? Why don't you give a run a rundown real quick of where people again where people can buy this stuff, talk to you, annoy you, beg you to open a store, whatever. All that, yeah. 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 There's a lot of things where the people can find you. Why don't we end it off? Will you give us that info? Let's talk about it. I'm, I'm very friendly and very approachable. Um, I love to get mail. I'm a, I go all the way back to the day when mail trading was a big thing. Send me a demo, I'll send you a demo. Send me a CD, I'll send you a CD. Send me some records and I, I'll... I just might at some point send you something in return. I got to think about these things, you know, takes a while. You took care of me when I sent you some records. I got a nice package in return. There you go. Oh, did I? Yeah. Well, it was like two weeks ago. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I usually assume that I haven't. No, you did. Okay, good. So yeah, send me some stuff. I love mail trading. So my, my uh, mailing address is P.O. Box 362. 26. That's P.O. Box 3626, Newtown, Connecticut, 06470. I'm, of course, on Facebook. Just make sure you spell my name right. M-A-L-C-O-L-M-T-E-N-T, Malcolm Tent, on Facebook, on Instagram, on uh, Discogs. Look up T-P-O-S as in the people of Saudi Arabia, TPOS on Discogs, and on eBay, Trash American Style. And of course, Instagram as well. If you can't find me after all that, you're not working hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for having me, guys. Really, uh, a lot of fun, up, man. man. Good times. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next week.
Thank you.